She was a great gal, but when he told me she hadn't had a drink of alcohol in a year, that got my attention, because I drank a lot of alcohol with him. And when he was drinking alcohol, she had the reputation of being a mean, nasty, fighting woman drunk. Now, she could have outdrank any man on the moon, under the moon, around the moon, on the earth. She carried a big black purse. Always had two pints of whiskey in that purse. And she'd kill you if you got in that purse. <laughs> and there she was, and that, that got my attention. And I looked for the chains. I know she chained. I looked up at her face, and her lipstick was on her lips and not her eyebrows. <laughs> I sniffed her, and she didn't smell halfway between an Avon woman and a whiskey box. She didn't grab her purse, and I said, I'll be back in 10 minutes and maybe show up 11 months later. <laughs> but I noticed the real change. The change was in her eyes. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we have two kinds of eyes. We have those sad, sad, sick eyes. And then we have those happy, dancing, laughing, sparkling, living, sober eyes. Oh, yes, we got another kind of eyes look, you know, that glassy look. They'll get up behind one of these things and say, I haven't had a drink alcohol, you know, and then fall over. But her eyes were sparkling and they were jumping and they were laughing and she looked like she was having a lot of fun living sober. Then she turned to another manicurist in the shop by the name of Molina. And she said, Molina is my sponsor. And she has 15 months sober in this deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. And back in those days in Alcoholics Anonymous, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, anytime we mentioned or talked about our sponsors, it was with reverence. Because we respected our sponsors. We respect our sponsors. Because we literally turned our lives over to their experiences and not their opinions. And we find, as a result of our experiences in Alcoholics Anonymous, that we're asked to share our experiences, not our opinions. Because in many, many instances, opinions have a tendency to make sick people sicker. And in some instances, to physically kill people. We have no right to monkey with anyone's emotions or anyone's heads or anything else in the world. We have only one story to tell. Our own. And this is all that any of us would know. We can't promise that will happen to anything or anybody. That's the precise reason that it says in chapter 5, if you decide you want what we have, and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. As much as we want to do it for them, as much as we want to get all the drunks that are out there drinking and bring them in and hug them and, just, and rock them to sleep, we know that we can't do that. We know we can't. But I had many, many years to go before I realized this. Now, I drank a lot of more alcohol with Moina than I did with Edith. And I, when they said Moina hadn't had a drink in 15 months, I looked at Moina I said, you're a bigger liar than Goofy over here. I said, Moina, we had a drink night. And she said, no, David, I've not had a drink of alcohol with you or anyone else or myself in 15 continuous months. Either did not had a drink of alcohol in 12 continuous months. Little did I realize that those precious words that fine lady said to me that morning would stick with me for many, many years. She talked about continuous sobriety. At that time, I had no reason whatever to know that it was one day at a time. And then that fine lady said, David, she says, we have an open meeting this Sunday at 5.30. It's open so the public can come in and hear and see how an alcoholic recovers in the alcoholic, uh, in the recovery program of Alcoholics how an alcoholic lives the AA way of life, and also to find out what AA is and what AA is not. And believe it or not, the greatest challenge that we have within Alcoholics Anonymous right this tick of time all over the world that there are hundreds of thousands of our members who do not know what Alcoholics Anonymous is not. That we're not all things for all people. 
the singleness of purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous has made Alcoholics Anonymous the envy of every self-help trying to problem group in the world today. And they all want our success, but they're not willing to go through the frustrations and the experience that brought us down to where we have to walk it. We have to remember about members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Members of Alcoholics Anonymous were, are, and I guess will always be alcoholics, even though many have other addictions. And that umbrella covers it all, every bit of it. And I did not know this. And then she said, also, being the last Sunday of the month, they have a sort of little birthday anniversary party for those who have one or more years of continuous sobriety. And she said, we would like you and your wife to come and attend that old meeting and stay afterwards for that birthday party. And I thought that the only reason that people such as you would invite someone such as me to come to one of your AA meetings and stay to one of your AA functions is that you needed to have some good-looking, outstanding, and successful professional man come and upgrade you lepers in the community. And I'm glad to come help you. So I went home and told my wife, Grace, and God, she was thrilled because people had long since quit asking us to come around. My wife used to ask me, why is it we're not asked for the outdoor barbecues and round dances and square dances and nightclub supper parties and card parties and domino parties and swimming pool parties? I said, it's you. I said, every time we're asked to go out to one of those things, you start on me on the Monday before, and you start screaming, you're not going to drink, you're not going to get drunk, are you? you? Wake me up out of a sound sleep 5.30 the next morning, screaming, did you hear what I said? <laughs> and you keep it up Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday, Wednesday night, Thursday, Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, and what a tremendous price society's had to pay, is paying, I guess we'll always pay. Those who love us, those who hate us, those who do not even care that we even exist on this earth. What a tremendous price those people are paying to find out. That the more you scream at our kind about our drinking, the more we're going to drink. I said, and furthermore, when we get to where we're supposed to get to, before I get parked the car, you're out of the car. You run and you grab the host and the hostess. You chase them out of the kitchen, through the den, in the backyard, and the alley, and the bushes, and the garbage, and the neighborhood screaming, don't you give him a drink of alcohol. <laughs> Woman, you're sick, that's what's wrong with you. But through tear-filled eyes, she said, we're going to meeting, and I said, yes. And so that Sunday morning, I got up at 5.30 in the morning to get ready to go to an AA meeting, 5.30 that afternoon. Well, now, what does a good self-respectful drinking drunk do when he gets up 5.30 on Sunday morning? Drinks alcohol, that's what he does. Let's face it, it's very simple. Golfers golf, fishermen fish, drunks drink. There's no big mess. And I start sucking on a brand new bottle of juice, you know That first drink gets you, gets your breathing started. Then that second drink regulates your breathing. Then that third drink goes down to both heels and just sets you there. Now you're ready to do some real drinking. And I'm drinking and I'm looking at the birds and the bees and the trees. And I'm hearing the neighbors screaming, Johnny, get dressed, we will be late for church. And I said, all oh, those sick people, they do not know what living really is. If they could just learn how to control it and enjoy it like I was doing that they would find out that right after breathing in and out, alcohol is the second greatest gift God's given mankind. Amen. Took another drink. <laughs> Drank half of that fifth of that whiskey and put the other half of the fifth in the trunk of my car because I knew at that time that I was going to be required to have another drink of alcohol. Maybe a second later, maybe two minutes later, maybe three hours later, maybe six hours later, but I knew I was going to have to have me a drink. And I'm one of these that firmly believes that if and when an alcoholic comes to us, that until and unless that alcoholic is willing to find out what's wrong with that alcoholic, 
That alcoholic will never be able to find out what can get right with that alcoholic. And I went in and I bathed and I shaved and I put on everything rich and nice looking to impress those poor, sick people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Put on a beautiful brand new tailor-made suit. White on white monogram shirt, monogram handkerchief, monogram tie, monogram drawers. Put on a diamond ring, a diamond watch, and a trademark of every good, self-respectful, high-rolling, drinking drunk. A brand new pair of custom-made alligator shoes. I look just like a used car salesman. Or a dope dealer. And at 10.30 in the morning, I'm out in my long roadmaster Buick honking the horn. And I cut my wife with the rollers in her hair. And she has on this all-your-fault kimono that they just love to live in and dwell in and cry in. Where she lost a string around the middle and it's pinned together with a big baby diaper pin. And she's pulled all the threading and the padding and the fussing and the buttons off the front. And the front's just covered with tear stains and cigarette burns. As well as drunks and alcoholics anonymous lovingly called the Alanon Designer House Coat. And in a beautiful kindly, wifely tone of voice, she screams out, What do you want, you no-good, sorry drunk? And meanwhile, all the neighbors had gathered out. And her side is lined up over here, and my side is lined up over here. And I can still hear the fine ladies of the neighborhood saying, Isn't that a shame? There's such a beautiful and fine lady and the mother of two beautiful little boys married to such a sorry, no-good drunk like him. And my bunch over here hollering out, let her have it, David, let her have it. And that used to be the weekend entertainment in every neighborhood we lived in. We moved 24 times before we come down to Hudson Sometimes at midnight, high noon, daybreak, ahead of the sheriff, a few times with the sheriff. Behind the sheriff just kept moving. And I said, let's go to meeting. She said, doesn't get started for seven more hours and no good drop. And with that, she turned on her heels and went in the house. And that started seven tough hours because here it was Sunday. And I'm sucking on the only bottle of juice that I've got. And I knew I was going to have to have me a drink. But I knew that if I went and got a bootlegger or called a taxi cab to go get me some whiskey, I'd blow the deal because, you see, when I got out of the service the first time, in 48, the sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous in Dallas, Texas, tried to net me. They tried to net me in 49. They tried to net me in, 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 in 47, rather, in 48 and 49, and, and in January of 50. And they thought they set the trap on the last Sunday, August of 1950. So I found just enough to nurse me along because, you see, I was one of those kind that when I drank, I rolled it all the way. And one of the biggest problems I had with the exception of my last three or four years of drinking, they'd find me, and they'd bring me home, and I wasn't through drinking. And I'd, I'd cry, and I'd get on my knees, and I'd beg, and I'd pray, and I'd put my hand in the Bible, around the Bible, under the Bible, under the cat's belly, the dog's tail. I'll never do it again. And I waited as soon as they'd put some more money or a check in my shirt pocket, and they turned their back, I'd run off to finish the drunk. Now, I have to stay away from home kind of drunk, not on purpose. I'd get drunk, and I ended up in countries I never knew existed on this earth. I ended up with people I never saw before in my life, sometimes with money, sometimes without, sometimes with clothes on, sometimes the other way. I'd go one time, they tell me about 11 months. 
No one knew where I was. My mother, my father, my wife, our two sons, my patients, my enemies, my friends. No one knew where I was. And I come running in the house with the same clothes I guess I had been in for about five months. And I asked my wife this brilliant question. Did anybody call? <laughs> and that does not make for good marriage relationships, I'll tell you. So I found just enough to nurse me along. And finally, at 4.30, I honked the horn, here she came, and off we went. And we drove up to this meeting place, and we went out, and I walked in. It must have been about 80 members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the wife, and the kid, and the poop two jumping up and down. And it looked like to me that every night they were hugging and they were kissing and they were laughing and they were scratching and they were rubbing up against and they were smoking and all this. I stepped back and I looked at those idiots and I said, by gosh, if they're alcoholic and they're having that much fun and they're not drinking alcohol, then they'd be on dope. <laughs> then I looked up and I saw all them signs in the A group and I said, my God, I'm in a kindergarten. And then I saw a butt for the grace of God in my head duck. Because I knew at that time that I was not living according to the dictates of God's will for a human being. And I'm one of them that firmly believes that if and when an alcoholic comes to us, even though many of us come to Alcoholics Anonymous without a full string of lights in their head, <laughs> deep down inside every one of us know this. If there is a principle that we never hear, or if very, very rarely, discussed in AA that every one of us are born human beings first. We get so carried away of when, when we become an alcoholic. And not interested when we become an alcoholic. What do you want to do about living sober as a problem drinker? We get so carried away. I was born and I can, I don't know about you, but I, I got to listen to that stuff. That's a dangerous thing to listen to in AA. And so I had to go get a copy of my birth certificate. And I wanted, that's the first thing I did when I ran out of that office of vital statistics to see if I was born an alcoholic. I read it, and you know what it said? I was born alive. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? But you see, we fail to discuss that. Because you see, Alcoholics Anonymous does something. That formalized, organized religion has not up to now and probably never will have the success that they have with our kind of people. Medicine has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Psychiatry has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Government agencies has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Social services has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Human willpower has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Acupuncture has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Hypnosis has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Horoscopes has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Biorhythm charts has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Witch doctors has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Because alcoholics and all reaches down the innermost depths of a human being. This fine, precious thing that comes with us is a gift. When our kind, uh, when a human being is given the most precious gift that a human being will ever possess or ever be given, and that is life, when we begin to breathe in and out. Because right there and then is the creation, formation, development of selfishness and self-centeredness. And from this selfishness and self-centeredness stems all those defects of character. Those defects that we refuse to recognize as moral. Those defects that made our lives unmanageable. Resentment, selfishness, dishonesty, and fear. And not wanting to tell another human being how darn phony we are. Or what's really churning with inside of each and every one of us. And, and, and if you pour alcohol into someone like me. 
and you've got something going. When I was drinking, I tried to drown my defects of character, but the son of a gun learned how to swim, <laughs> and they darn near killed me. Yeah. And because, you see, alcohol's not reaches down in this most precious thing, this fine, precious thing. It says to each and every one of us, if we'll listen, after we get physically comfortable from the agent that forces us to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you, little alcoholic, for not taking a drink of alcohol today. Thank you, little alcoholic, for finding a way to have a reasonably good night's sleep. But more important, thank you, little alcoholic, for finding a group of people who love you no matter what you have done, what you are doing, or what you ever will do. And that is where the great power of our society lies, one of our kind talking to another. And I did not know this. And then they either whistled, rang a bell, or did something, and everybody went to the meeting. And I went and I sat on the back row to see what kind of help I could afford to give those poor, sick people. And the first talker got up, and it's a lioness, cheatingest woman I'd ever been around in my life. And she had nerve enough to stand up in front of 80 people and say she was sober, sane, in her right mind, and hadn't had a drink of alcohol in a year. And I jumped up and I screamed out, You are a liar! And somebody said, shut up. <laughs> well, you know how wet drunk answer you when you tell them, shut up? Make me. Well, they had enough in that meeting to make me. And she started talking about her Jesus, and she started talking about Christ and everything else in this world. And I said, if this is what you were, y'all tricked me. You brought me here to convert me. And if this is what you were, I needed to drink real bad, you know? And I didn't listen to one thing that was said at that meeting. Because I, I, and I had to get sober now to Alex Anonymous to find out. No, it wasn't what that woman talked about Christ. It wasn't the Lord's Prayer and God that they talked about in the meeting. No, remember I told you I got up at 5.30 in the morning that morning and started drinking. I knew that I was going to have to have me another drink. I did not know the reason until after I got sober. And I found out in the doctor's opinion that my body was screaming out for a drink of alcohol. And when the body screams out for an alcohol, uh, alcohol, and that head can't do a darn thing about it. And it wasn't that doggone thing. And I, I wanted to get out of that meeting as fast as I could. But I violated a very serious code in that meeting. Am I living in my drinking? Because here I was on the back row. There was not a back door. There's not a window to jump out of. Because I started drinking with, working with, fighting with, cheating with the black and the white wino, which was in Skid Row at Skid Row today, and I guess it'll always be Skid Row in Dallas, Texas. And I've lived on three Skid Rows in my lifetime, one for over six years, one for over four and a half years, but the last one for 14 months was the toughest. And I'm not going to stand up here this afternoon and share life on Skid Row with you, but the Skid Rows I lived on, there was no day and there was no night and there was no sun and there was no moon and there were no clouds and there were no stars. And there were no seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. Just total inner and outer blackness and darkness. Now, the best way I can describe that kind of an existence is just bodies and feet. And you don't care if you live, you don't care if you die. You don't care if you work, you don't care if you don't work. You don't care if you eat, you don't care if you don't eat. You don't care if you sleep, you don't care if you don't sleep. You don't care if you see your loved ones, you don't care if you see them. You just don't care. And an alcoholic cannot stay on Skid Row. An alcoholic has got to get off of Skid Row. Because an alcoholic will lie about that alcoholic's drinking. That alcoholic will hide that alcoholic's bottle. And I'll tell you right now, if you hide your bottle down the road and don't share it, you're not long for this earth. I don't mind telling you. I did not have to be down there. Because I came from one of the finest families that God ever put on this earth. A mother and father 
who dedicated their two lives to give to the two sons that were born in that marriage, and I being the oldest, everything that was denied them when they were growing up. And if one of the sons is going to become an alcoholic, I don't know of a better deal. When you've got a mother and father that's willing to go to every and any length to keep it from hurting and to keep it from suffering and to keep from bringing shame and disgrace on the family name and the family heritage and the family religion. Yeah, I learned a lot of things down on Skidder. I started drinking bay rum and wine. That was a standard fare. And later on, as I grew older physically, get more money in my pocket, I'd go from that bay rum and that wine to that good stuff and never miss a lick. And come down from that good stuff down to Gypsy Road and Thunderbird. I don't know about anybody in AA. I wasn't drinking it because of the price of it. I wasn't drinking it because of the smell of it. I wasn't drinking it because it was socially acceptable. I was drinking it because I liked what it did to me and with me and for me when it got in and down and through me. And I liked what it allowed me to do to you or against you in and down and through me. And little did I realize, after that initial effect of that first drink, it planted something in my head that said, David, every chance you're going to get, you're going to take a drink of alcohol to reproduce that initial effect. And right there and then, it was the beginning of a problem and not an answer. I learned a lot of other things down on Skid Row. Never get your back up against the wall and have a back door window you to jump out of. If you smoke or anything, keep both hands free so you hit and run. I've always been five foot six. I born five foot six. I drink that juice and I'd be seven foot tall. I've had hundreds of fights. Never won a one. My nose has been where my navel is. My navel's been where my right hand have been all rearranged. When I was 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age, I ran off and joined Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus. Now, back in those days, the Ringling Show was the finest and largest on the canvas in the entire world. And it would have been a thrill for a youngster to go with a circus in those days with all the wild animals and the clowns. And I was with him when Tom Mix and his trick horse Tony ran the Wild West show. I was with him when Gargantia the gorilla come aboard. It would have been a wonderful thing. And I learned in the circus the most beautiful concoction of drink that's ever been devised by man called Green Lizard Circus Style. A tremendous drink. Elixir of sodium bromide, lucky tiger, hair tonic. And I used to drink that stuff, and I'd see Bambi and those animals in Technicolor long before I did there for my But I'm trying to live three codes of living. I'm trying to live the code of living that society was demanding I live. And that's go to school and become a useful human being. And be of maximum service to my God and my family and, 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 and God's kids in the country in which I'm fortunate enough to be born in. And I'd end up in sewers and in alleys and cardboard boxes and sleeping over steam grapes. And then I'm trying to live the code and in gooey roofs and in jails and everything else you can think of. And then I'm trying to live the code of living my mother and father wanted me to live and they had all the money. And if you already had been in all the trouble I'd been in was it and getting ready to get into, it takes a lot of money to get you out so you can get back in it again. And then I'm trying to live the code of living that alcohol was demanding on my life, and you're way ahead of me, you know, which one went up. Yeah. But while I was in the circus, I drank with the most delightful drunks I ever drank with in my life, any place, anywhere. It's the only bunch of drunks that I was taller than them. I drank with all the midgets. Let me tell you about those midgets. Midgets, first of all, they're tremendous athletes. And they, when they get drunk, they're just meaner than mean. And with every kind of problem in this God's world. And one day, John Ringler North called me to see. I went there and said, boy, you're going to have to leave the circus. You're ruining my midgets. I said, ruining your midgets? They're ruining me. I went back and told the midgets. The midget went to see John Ringler North and said, if he goes, we go.
And you didn't have a good circus with the wild animals and clowns and midgets. But my mother and father would find me and they'd jerk me and they'd put me back in school. But my body would be in the chair in the schoolroom, but my mind would be back out there. It couldn't wait to get back out there. And I had to get sober to find out that the reason was very simple. That the reason I wanted back out there, because I was not through drinking alcohol. I did not know this at the time. I certainly didn't. I certainly and so here I am, I'm sitting on the back row in that meeting, and there's not a back door window to jump out. That woman talked about it, right now, I want to drink real bad. And as soon as that meeting was over with, everybody goes through the ice cream and the cake and all the other goodies, you know, not me. I ran through those 80 people like a tornado. I got out to the trunk of my car, opened up that half-fifth whiskey. I don't know about anybody in that, hey, but I drank it down to two swallows. Now, that's why I drank alcohol. I never put it in a brandy glass and run around sniffing for five hours and burn candles and incense and listen to Lawrence Welk. <laughs> I never put an inch of whiskey in a glass, nine ice cubes, twelve and a half inches of soda water, and a straw and a fruit and a cherry and a half a Christmas tree on top of it and suck on it for about three hours. To me, that's sick drinking. I drank her to drop her down in that hole where it'll do the most good and then put another one down. But let me tell you what happened to me when I drank that half-fifth. My hair laid back down. My underwear loosened up. My toes went back in those alligator shoes comfortably. I ran up the steps, got hold of the oldest sober member of the group, got to arguing with him about the quality of y'all's fellowship. And he said something to me, and I hit it. Now, when I was drinking, I bad to hit people. Tottered me, shartered me, fattered me, skinned me. And two of his AA babies joined in, we started to fight. And as far as I was concerned, that fight was a lot better than that AA meeting because I was just whipping the dickens out of them two little whips. <laughs> then they did an unfair thing. They ran in two more members of the group about the size of outside linebackers on any professional football team. And finally, four of them picked me up bodily, two on each side. Went to the front door, kicked the front door open, and threw me right out of that AA group. As I'm flying through the air, one of them said, we do not need your kind here. And another one said, and furthermore, you are too young to be an alcoholic. And God was I glad to hear that. And I stood on that grass at that meeting place with my fist clenched, screaming and hollering and cursing to anybody that listened to me that I would never come back to this Christ soul saving organization as long as I live, that I wasn't an alcoholic, I was too young to be an alcoholic. But the next 17 years, Everything that could possibly happen to a human being happened to this human being. And the only three things never did happen to me getting ready to get on a drunk, on a drunk, coming off a drunk right to this very second, is I never did willfully murder another human being, fall in love with another man, or die drunk. Other than that, it all happened. <laughs> I, I, of course, I guess blackouts don't count. I really don't know. <laughs> we don't want to <laughs> We don't want anybody to hit meeting with resentments, you know. Well, I married this wonderful gal, and when we got married, she didn't realize she was married an active alcoholic. So when we got married, we didn't start to build a marriage, started to build a booby trap, one that could go off on any week, month, or year. And I was recalled back into the service, and I was, my first time in the service, I didn't get into too much trouble. I was, I was a naval dental officer, and, and I was aboard Jeep carriers, and all, I had missed ship a couple of times. And you don't know what it is to be extremely drunk and unsteady of balance. 
and he fall off the fantail of a battleship. And that sucker is in dry dock. I fell off the New Jersey twice. Once in dry dock in Burlington and once off Inchon later on. Well, I got recalled back as a naval dental officer, and I went with a combat marine today, and I got into more trouble than trouble. I ended up in a maximum security prison. And I didn't realize that was the reason I went until I got there. Because of me. And here I was, and, and I had a leg iron locked around my right leg, and a chain welded to the leg iron, the other end chain welded to the steel cotton, four legs, steel cotton, immersed in concrete. And there were armed gorillas around me 24 hours a day daring me to move. I laid like that for one solid year. And I've been laying like that for six months. And Christmas of 54. I'm hating society. I got a bad deal. This, that, this, that. Now, I was the best spot to take a, take a long, hard look at me. I wasn't. It was easier and much more comfortable to blame everything and everybody. And here it is Christmas Day, and in comes the orderly with the Christmas dinner. Now, let me tell you what the Christmas dinner was. It wasn't much better what you got the rest of All you got was one little bowl a day, and it was more like dirty dishwater. But for Christmas, they did you a favor. They put a noodle in it. <laughs> and in comes in with, the, with Christmas dinner, and he says to me, Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. And I'm so full of Christmas spirit and joy for my fellow man. I say, Ho, 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 you know what? He said, here is your dinner, you no-good, sorry son of a gun. You're going to be like the rest of them. You'll never leave here. And the word was, when you arrived there, you wouldn't go to leave. And I saw how some of them left with sheets from the top of their head down to their toes. And he said, you're just no good. And when he gave me that bowl, I was so grateful. I picked it up, I hit him right in the face with it. And my Christmas gift for that day was 75 more straight days on nothing. Now, that's what you call a bad day. <laughs> I have not had a day that bad since I have been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and neither have you. How <laughs> got out of that? There are two still alive, and they're out drinking. We talk only in generality. There are ten of us in the day today. Every one of us got sober, not knowing we were all in AA. Didn't know it, many times. Between March the 15th of 1967 and April the 20th of 1967, and I'm still the baby of the bunch. I got out under some very, very severe circumstances. I talked my wife into taking me back, and we started moving again. And we decided to move to the Panhandle of West Texas to raise our two little boys in a Christian environment. And we moved to a little town of third, about 3,500 people. I don't know how many of y'all ever lived in a town of 3,500 people in the Panhandle of West Texas. That's a town that's a Christian environment. That's a town that votes dry and drinks wet. And the two most popular people in town is the Undertaker and the Bootlegger. And I drank into, and every day I got up to where I weighed about 240 some odd pounds, and my blood pressure was so high that every time my pulse would beat, my hair would stand straight up and puff like all well. Had a fat doctor friend, lived about 30 miles away. I go see him. He takes one look at me. He's a good doctor if you're going to, to be examined while you're drinking. Let's take a drink of alcohol before I examine you. I said, you bet, doctor. Then he put the cuff around my arm and he ran the air up and he says, you know, it's a miracle you are alive. Your blood pressure is so high. Then he said, the reason your blood pressure is so high is because you're so fat. Then he said, the reason that you're so fat is because you eat so much. Well, that wasn't true. I was bloated. 
And he said, you do not have any guts, you do not have any willpower, and I'm going to have to give you some help. And he wrote me a prescription for 60 of the most beautiful capsules I have ever seen in my life called Nemudons. And he says, take them as directed. I said, doctor, will it be all right if I drink a couple of beers while I take those beauties? He said, I do not believe it will hurt you. He never should have told me that. So I went home and I had the prescription filled and went home to lose weight and stay drunk. Well, I looked at the prescription, it says to take one three times a day after meals. Well, who eats when you drink? And every good, self-respectful drinking drunk knows if one's good, two's, to, uh, two's better, and three's terrific. So I just took three of them and drank some alcohol, didn't feel like I was losing any weight. Come back out, took three more of them, drank some more alcohol, went in the bathroom, turned sideways, looked in the mirror, didn't look like I was losing any weight. Come out and took a handful of them, drank some more whiskey, looked like my stomach's getting bigger. Our co-founder Bill wrote some very prophetic lines when he said, when a drunk is drinking, it's tying out of mind. It's so slow, and the only sad thing I found about Alcoholics Anonymous, the time passes so fast sober, where does it go? And finally, I took all the pills and drank all the whiskey. And the next thing I knew, I was out, out in my backyard, and I was picking peaches off of rose bushes. I don't mind telling you. And they tell me I ran, that, ran, ran around that little town for two days talking in the unknown tongue, you know. <laughs> and being one or two Jewish families in five counties around, they gathered everybody in to see and hear the miracle. Because word had spread like wildfire. The Jew had caught the Holy Ghost, you know. <laughs> and when I come to and realize what happened, I said, my gosh, those pills are messing up my drinking. Oh, I've been to the psychiatrist, and all the questions he asked me, my wife used to ask me for nothing. Judges used to ask me for nothing. Sheriffs used to ask me for nothing. People used to ask me for nothing. And we had to move away from that little town. And we moved back to Dallas with a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. But I'm taking me with me. And it wasn't long. Before I'm down on that last skid row, sleeping in them 55 cent night hotel rooms with your shoes tied around your neck, empty in wine bottles. I went home once the last 11 months of drink. I walked in and my wife looked at me and she said, do you have to drink and do the things that you do? I said, Grace, I cannot stop drinking. Why don't you find another man that will marry you? You're such a fine lady that'll be a a wonderful and good husband to you, and a father that will find two boys. I cannot function as a son, I cannot function as a husband, I cannot function as a father, I cannot function as a professional man, I have no desire to live, I'm going to die drunk. And I grabbed my bottle and I went out to try to proceed to kill myself. And somewhere along the line, on April 18th, 1920, 1967, I really don't know, I found a handwriting on the floor of the county jail in Dallas, Texas. Now, I've been in lots of jails, and being in jail is not a requirement for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. But this time, I run out of everything. I got down to me, I couldn't stay sober, and I couldn't stay drunk, and I couldn't kill myself, and I couldn't stay alive, and me didn't like me. Like me was, but me was going with me every place me went. I didn't holler. I didn't scream. I didn't plead. I didn't even put a condition on it. I just simply said, God, help me. And I know right this very second, there's not only God for me then, there is right this second because I'm still here. And I have not had a drink of alcohol. 
But the minute I got me out of me, with no conditions on it, something deep inside me kept saying, Alcoholics Anonymous, continue sobriety, continue sobriety, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, if I ever get out of this jail, I have to find those people in Alcoholics Anonymous. In this jail, as I was led to him, he said these words, boy, if you ever show up my jail again for drinking, drunk, and doing the things you do, I'll have you put away to where you'll never bother another human being, bird, tree, dog, or rock. Do you understand? I said, yes, sir, Mr. Bill. He said, you can go. I heard him so well that day, I walked right out of his office, right across the street, into a whiskey store, and bought me another bottle of Muscadoodle and went to the park with the rest of the pigeons and the wine over and said I'd beat him again. But how I got by him this time, I don't know. When I got out, I started looking for Edith, the gal who asked me to come to her first year anniversary. I found out that Edith had passed away, but she was continuously sober when she died. Her sponsor, Molina, had moved to West Texas. After I was sober nine months, months Molina moved back to Dallas. She became secretary of the group again. And it wasn't long after that she went to manicure again. And I used to see Molina every Wednesday morning as my manicurist. And in March of 1987, Six, rather. Melina passed away. And if she would have lived two more months, she would have been 37 continuous years sober in alcoholics now. There was a man at that meeting, the only one that I could remember. He was sober eight years. He went back to drinking. He drank for eight years. And this past December, a year ago, he passed away. He was sober 26, 27 years this stretch. I called him up. Here's a man that you normally cannot reach by phone, mail, or anywhere else. He was a tremendous successful businessman. A tremendously rich man. He was a confidant of presidents. And that's not the reason I called him. It's the only one I knew. You normally can't get him. You've got to go through 19 secretaries and two chauffeurs. That morning I called and Helen said, just a minute. And W.O. got on the phone. He said, what do you want? I said, W.O., are you still interested in Alcoholics Anonymous? He said, yes. Then he said, who is it for? I said, it's for me. He said, well, we have a meeting tomorrow night. Let's just go and get it over with. And don't you take a drink of alcohol today. And call me at 7.30 in the morning. Boom, and he hung up, and that's all he told me. And after 37 and a half years giving it to that shot, it was cold turkey. Well, it's more like frozen buzzard, if you want to know the truth about it. I started walking and shaking out of drunk. And 7.30 the next morning, I called him. He said, are you drinking alcohol? I said, no, sir. He said, don't you take that drink of alcohol today and call me at 3.30 this afternoon. Boom, and he hung up again. Started that walking and that shaking. And finally, at 3.30, I called him. He said, are you drinking alcohol? I said, no, sir. Then he said, do you really want to come to an AA meeting? I said, more than anything else in this world. He said, would you like for me to come get you? And being about as humble as Hitler, I said, I'll get there under my own steam. And he told me where to go. And then he hung up. Well, I was in a terrible predicament. 
all my clothes and my possessions I had on. I had an old pair of thermal underwear, an old gray sweater with the elbows out the elbows, an old pair of gray flannel pants with all my possessions in it. No socks, but I still haven't quite lost everything yet. I had a pair of beat-up old alligator shoes. And the only money I had was 30 cents. And that was all that was left of the last money blood I sold to blood bank to buy wine. And when one comes to AA in that shape, one is not doing well. And I looked at the mirror, my old dirty self, and I said, I can't go to Alcoholics Anonymous looking like this. I'm a professional man. And I heard that Grace had thrown out all my clothes. But I took a chance and I called her up. And I said, Grace, she said, who? And I said, me. She said, what does me want? I said, Grace, do you happen to have one of my old suits? She says, yes, I have one. And it is to bury you in. I suppose you come down now. I then asked that woman the most foolish question I've ever asked her in my life. I said, do you mind if I borrow it for a little while? I'm going to an AA meeting. He said, another one of your lives and hung up. Well, that suits the story in itself. She let me back in her house. Now, there was an instant joy when I walked in that household and told them I'm going to alcoholics and I'm, uh-uh. Everything I looked at, touched, breathed on, inhaled, she ran behind me and she sprayed. <laughs> I put that old suit on, that's a story in itself. But she and the young and goodbye got into a Mustang that the bank was looking to repossess it, but he couldn't recognize it. It looked like an accordion. And off I went to the meeting. And I walked in, it looked like the same people that were there 17 years earlier. And one of the older members came up to me and he bent down, he looked at me and he grinned from ear to ear and he said, We knew you'd be back. <laughs> tell you about the greatest day talk I've ever heard in my life. Every member of Alcoholics and I've heard it, and if your group has not told it to you, you have been cheated. Now, hey, we don't have any speakers. Now, nah, we're just a bunch of talkers. Because ours is the language of the heart, and thank God it is not the language of the gutter. This fine man said to me, welcome. Come in and sit down and have a cup of coffee. And let's talk about it. We understand exactly how you feel. That is the greatest A talk I've ever heard in my life. He didn't say to me, you never should have done those things. He didn't say to me, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have done those things. No. We understand exactly how you feel. It's the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking that anyone shook my hand. First time in the last 17 years of my drinking that anyone invited me in. It's the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anyone asked me to share a cup of coffee with them other than in other places. And certainly the first time in my life that anyone asked me to come in and sit in a meeting with me, it wasn't a mission or somewhere else. And I'm sitting there and I'm shaking and I'm jumping and the drunks are on either side of me and they're putting their hands on my knees and my shoulders and my elbow and saying, first things first, easy does it, this too will pass. And then when they pass the basket, and money come for me, it's the first time I didn't reach in and take out some. And then when it was over with, and they stood and said the Lord's Prayer, and I did not know the Lord's Prayer, and no one called me an atheist, and no one called me an agnostic, and no one called me an idiot, and no one called me a dummy. And after that, those fine people, many of them walked up to me, and they hugged me, and they kissed me, and they told me how much they loved me. 
They loved me for what I had done and what I was right there and then. And when I got ready to leave that meeting, those fine people said, David, please come back. We need you, and you need us. Folks, that is alcoholics not. Nothing more. Nothing less. Just God's grace. And a miracle of sobriety and alcoholics along our way of life. Hugging and loving an alcoholic who thought life was over with. Who didn't want to leave anymore. Live anymore. And in that infusion of that love and that desire. And it started a way of life that's indescribably wonderful. Oh, we could have run the steps. We could have gone through the traditions. We could talk to service structure. We could do the concepts of world service and all this everything else in that. But the story still is the most powerful vehicle that we have in alcoholics anonymous. Then I realized that when I got sober, that my wife and our two sons would ever be back together again. Because that marriage had been written off by everything and everybody, and it had no right to be. But only because of God's grace through the miracle of alcoholics in my life, and only because of God's grace through the miracle of Al-Anon and Grace's life. This past June the 10th, or let me put it this way, if I'm alive and sober and Grace behaves, <laughs> this June the 10th, Grace and I, which is also A.A.'s birthday, Grace and I will be married 52 years. And that's pretty good for a for many, many years, you know, and I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, because I mean, it, it embraces an Al-Anon, that our marriage is absolutely beautiful, <laughs> that the butterflies are tranquil, that the bluebirds are hugging and kissing and cooing. Heck no. We have a few short rounds every now and then. We have a few long rounds every now and then. That's what you call clearing the air, communicating. The best way I can describe our marriage today is built on solid, constructive imperfections. Because it's by our imperfections that we grow. And anyway, I go to five to seven, eight meetings a week. Grace goes to four to five, out nine meetings a week. We don't see each other enough to have all that nitpick and hide and fights and fussing. Our two sons, they're grown today, and they're tremendously successful. And I didn't have a thing to do with it. Our oldest son, when he was 15 years of age, had a butcher knife in my breastbone, and he was going to kill me for what I was doing to their mother. And if I could have gotten off that floor, I'd have beat him to death. But the wildness left his eyes. He dropped that knife. He turned around, and he spat in my face, and he says, You're no longer my father, and I am no longer your son, and he walked out of my life. And that hurt. Oh, it hurt. And I had no communication with him from quite a few years. You see, their mother was their mother, their mother was their father, their mother was their Santa Claus, their mother took them on vacations, and their mother took them to the Little League and to, and to Cub Scouts and later on Boy Scouts. Their mother was the only link to sanity that those two boys had. And they couldn't stand to see what was happening to their mother. Because here she had married someone, and she saw me totally go down the drain. And she was helpless and powerless to do anything about it. And they were going to willing to kill me to hold on to that only link and small thread of sanity that they were capable of holding on to. But today, because of AA and Al-Anon, 
in the family life, and they in my life. Today, we not only have a tremendous father and son relationship, we're more important. We're the best of friends. We're two beautiful daughter-in-laws and two of the most beautiful granddaughters that anyone could ever be blessed to have. The, the oldest one is 11, she thinks she's 16. And the little one is five, they're multilingual. And they, they do things, I can't even turn a computer on. They send me letters written on a computer, you know. And I darn near missed the whole thing. Darn near missed it. Now, A did not save my marriage. No, no, no. Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a set of principles to live like the son I've always wanted to live. To be the kind of a husband I've always wanted to be. To be the kind of father that I've always wanted to be. And to be the kind of a professional man that I've always wanted to be. But more important, it gave me a way to live to be like I believe God wants me to be. Every indignity that happened to me has been worth it because it brought me to you people. And through you people, I found a God of my understanding, a God that I know that loves me more than anything else in this world, just like he loves each and every one of you more than anything else in this world. What Dr. Shuckworth told Bill, when Bill was laying in town hospital, and Bill had what we call an A, Bill's high flask. And he was explaining it to Dr. Silkworth, am I crazy? Dr. Silkworth, Bill, I don't know what you got, but hold on to it. It's the best thing you've ever had. All of us in AA, hold on to it. It's the best thing we've ever had, or will ever have. When I got sober, I had to go to the regulatory agency that licensed my profession to make a living. I had to go down and tell them the truth. They already knew it. They wanted to hear it from me. I went down and kept me down there for a week. They were going to let you go by. We'll be watching you one day at a time. I've been back ever since. Now, y'all have heard only the nicer parts of my story. And I'm asked by many members of Dog Hearts and Arms and those who know me, they're not in the fellowship, David. You were gone for long stretches of time. You were locked up. How did you ever get through school? Well, I was my class valedictorian in high school. I finished second in a class of 450 at Southern Methodist University. And I'm a graduate of Baylor University College of Dentistry. He said, how'd you do it? Real simple. You cheat. <laughs> it doesn't take that long. It doesn't take our kind long to find another human being who will do for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. <laughs> now, what's happened to me since I've been there? This is not me, it's all alcoholics and arms. Because ours is not a personal success story, but one of colossal human failure converted into great strength by the alchemy of the living grace of God as expressed in the recovery program about how it's anonymous and our fellowship therein. And y'all have been so kind, and I want to leave you with something. I'm hoping that our general service conference, one of these days, will take part of what I'm saying from a letter and put it into a service piece and make it available for not only all the members of Alcoholics Anonymous at the current time, but all those to come. 
If you reprinted a letter that was written by co-founder Bill on December 30, 1946. The letter was written to Bill by a non-alcoholic. A non-alcoholic who loved AA more than anything else in this world, including his family. A non-alcoholic whose family name is perhaps the most famous family name that the world has known up to now as far as money, banking, energy, foundations, education, fellowships, and grants. And if it hadn't been for that particular non-alcoholic and his non-alcoholic friends who believed mightily in the early days of AA, if Bill and Dr. Bob probably never would have continued, our big book never would have been written, and from our big book we got our name. And the letter was written to Bill by John D. Rockefeller, Jr., thanking Bill for a World War II printing of the Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That due to the paper shortage, they had to cut the size of the book down, but they never dropped out anything out of it. The first part of the letter is thanking Bill for the inscription on the flyleaf and for the book. But this is the part of the letter I want to leave with you, quote to Bill. It must be a great satisfaction for you to realize that the helping hand that you extended to a needy brother many years ago has resulted in the widespread extension of that brotherly act. The regenerating power of the spirit of that helping hand has been the means by which countless lives have been saved that otherwise would have been wrecked. May God continue to bless you and use you ever increasingly as his chosen instrument in the rebuilding of broken lives. Every one of us in this meeting, right this very second, we're here and in AA all the while we're here as a result of the extension of that friendly hand from Bill to Dr. Bob to Bill D. And here we are. The regenerating of the power of the human spirit tied in with the contact of a power greater than ourselves that allows us now to live in dignity, a way to live in dignity, and walk with our fellow man in this world of reality. If there's a hope, if there's a desire, if there is a wish that I have for each and every one of us, may we continue to let God bless us and use us ever increasingly as his chosen instrument in the rebuilding of broken lives. And how will God continue to do this, and that is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. God bless each and one of you. Thank you. God bless you. Mildred and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I didn't know that I had that piece about me. I can tell you, and I will try to share this with you this morning, that uh, I'm certainly not the person that I was when I came here almost 22 years ago, and I certainly am not the person I was when I came here the first time in 1966. And, uh, you know, I love your theme, continuing the journey. And I'm so grateful for the reality of that in my life because in the last three years, life has changed for me as I knew it. And I'm so glad that I continued the journey because I would have missed the best part of my life as I have known life on the planet in the last couple of months. Because believe it or not, we do grow here. The important thing is, I believe, to suit up and show up because this is not like therapy. It isn't like a treatment center. It's like, it's not self-help. What I believe really happens here is God help. 
And God takes time to grow his oak trees, and he takes time to grow whatever it is that is really precious. And so if we come here very wounded, it takes time for the layers to be peeled off and the sores to be healed and for the consciousness to change so that we can really experience what we already are. You know, in my crazy days, when I was coming to A.A. Stoned, and that's a crazy day, I'll tell you, Chuck Chamberlain used to come out to Prince Albert, and uh, that's where I did some of this bad stuff. Cease was my sponsor at the time, and uh, so everywhere that Chuck Chamberlain went, Cease was, and everywhere that Cease went, he dragged me along. And um, Chuck Chamberlain, of course, knew exactly what I was up to, and he knew that I was a phony, and he knew that, you know, that I was sitting around the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous stoned, and if you're new, that's really not the way this goes. And Chuck Chamberlain used to say to me, Miss Mildred, that was his way of telling me he had my number. He'd say, Miss Mildred, you won't believe this today, and you won't understand it. I don't expect you to. But he said, you already are everything that you can be. And he was right. I didn't know what he meant, and I certainly didn't understand it. And I've heard this in various, expressed in various ways as I've been in the program. And uh, it was lovely to hear Sandy say that last night. It's wonderful to be here, you know. It's terrible to be left to the end because you're sitting on tenterhooks and you go to hear all these speakers and everybody says what you're thinking and everybody has all, you know, all these nice things that you plan to say. Sandy said it last night, Grace said it yesterday afternoon, Dave said it yesterday afternoon, and Charlotte on Friday night and the two gentlemen this morning. So what is there for me to say? Well, what I'm supposed to do and which is to share my experience, strength, and hope with you you know, sobriety looks different in each of us, doesn't it? As my sponsor used to say, the way each of us does self looks different. That's why you have to do a fourth step. And I believe the way sobriety manifests in each of us looks different, too. We don't all get it in the same way. You know, I've had things happen to me in 20 years that people say, you shouldn't say that at a meeting because you're going to discourage the newcomer. Why? It's a continuing the journey, and we hear when we hear, and if we don't hear, we just suit up and keep coming back till we do hear. Because I do believe that the miracle is available, and the increasing miracle is available. The miracle of sobriety at the center of our lives, which makes possible every other miracle. And I'd like to thank Dave, before I get into that, uh, and Barbara, for keeping in touch and for inviting me in the first place. I had never heard of Canon Dave knew about Rochester, but not Canon Dagua. And, uh, you know, they've been wonderful communicators and made me feel just so welcome, and thank you for all of that. I think you better keep an eye on that chairperson that you're having next year. He's a wild man. Have you ever driven with him? <laughs> you're lucky I'm here. You're lucky that the taper is still here. We went out to Wegmans with him yesterday. We're coming up to this red light, and he says, red lights are such a nuisance, I feel like going right through it. As there are ten cars coming barreling down from the opposite direction. But he's really quite a pussycat, because when we got into Wegmans, he's showing us the wonders of Wegmans. And he's showing us the small carts and the medium-sized carts and the big carts. And Donna says, let's get in, take us for a ride. <laughs> I was game. He chickened out. <laughs> So, 
I've also made an amazing discovery. I've made an amazing discovery of what small town means. I was born on the prairies on a farm in Saskatchewan. And when you say small town, you're talking small town. You mean 100 people, maybe 200 people, maximum 300 people. I've seen all these signs of different towns that you people are from. Oh, yeah, this is a small town. How many people? Oh, 5,000, 6,000. That in the prairies is definitely a very big town. So I've had that education, too. Well, let me tell you, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad... I'm not glad. I'm delighted to be an alcoholic, and I'm just so happy to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're new and you're suffering, or if you're old in sobriety and you're suffering, you may say that I should be locked up. And I understand that, and I have been locked up many times, 32 that I know of, as a matter of fact. In one psychiatric ward, mental institution, or an insane asylum across the country. Sandy, you weren't the only one wearing bands, only I didn't try to tote any message to anybody when I was in those places. Sometimes they locked me up for five days and sometimes for five months. Sometimes because I wanted to be there, sometimes because other people wanted me to be there. I would wake up in rooms that had the architectural deficiency of no knob on my side of the door. <laughs> I sometimes would wake up tied to the bed, and trust me, it was not for fun and frolic. <laughs> when I was in those places, they tried every therapy then known to man. They tried uh, drug therapy, they tried one-on-one uh, -on -one therapy, they tried group therapy, they tried insulin shock, and then they tried electroshock, and I had 25 of those in one series, and another time I had 13, and I'll tell you, if you need a buzz, it'll give it to you. <laughs> and then the diagnosis. They diagnosed me as being schizophrenic. They said I was schizophrenic paranoid, paranoid schizoid. They said that I was manic depressive manic, manic depressive depressed. They said I had a chronic personality disorder. They said I had an organic personality disorder. So you can understand that when a psychiatrist said, we think you're an alcoholic, that was the good news. <laughs> you know, I should say that in all the years that I drank and in all the years that I was put into those places, nobody ever asked me if I drank too much. Nobody ever asked me if I drank. That's the amazing thing. I swear to you, alcohol was absolutely never mentioned. And I certainly was not going to tell them that I drank. I can remember sitting in line with the other patients who were going to have shock treatments, and I hated them because some of those were without anesthetic, and they were just awful. And uh, I remember sitting there in line and thinking, my God, am I ever glad they didn't ask me if I drink too much, because I would sooner take out shock treatments than I would give up the booze. I didn't start out in life that way. But by the time I got here, I was homeless, I was paralyzed with rage and resentment, paralyzed with fear, filled with all kinds of sexual problems, and physically broken. Let, let, you know, not even trying to discuss what had happened to me mentally. Alcoholism had eaten away my insides, and I came here empty and alone and really insane in a way of speaking. And then I came here. And then you showed me the warranty. You said, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. You told me that I could be rocketed into the fourth dimension. 
You told me that God would commence to do for me what I could not do for myself. You told me things like self-reliance failed. I didn't know what those things meant, but I knew that it was the truth. You know, like we know when we hear the truth and we know when we hear falsehood. And I think sometimes that I take Alcoholics Anonymous for granted. You know, I just know that I can go anywhere in Canada and the United States and many cities throughout the world and I don't have to be alone. You know, that's wonderful, isn't it? And when I say I'm alcoholic and you say you're alcoholic immediately, there's a bond. We may come from different parts of the planet. We may have had completely different life experiences, but there's a bond and we can talk. And I, you know, sometimes think that we lose the appreciation for that miracle in our lives. It was brought home to me one day when I went to see a new principal of mine. I'm a college and high school teacher, and, and uh, when I used to go to conferences, I'm retired now, but when I used to go to conferences, I would have to ask for time off, and my board always gave me days off with pay, but we had a new principal. This bird was a real tough bird. He was a military man. And also, he was a minister in an evangelical church, my Lord. And I had to go in and tell him that I wanted days off because I was an alcoholic, and I had been invited to speak at a conference of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was not itching to go to his office, I can tell you. Anyway, I went to his office, and um, he said, I told him what I wanted, and he said, uh, oh, he said, that's no problem. That's public service. Of course you can go. But he said, do you have that book? He said, you have that book that you alcoholics read in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, do you mean the big book? And he said, yes, and I brought him a copy. About two days later, I was called down to his office. And when I got to his office, he jumped up from the chair. And he didn't even greet me. He held out this book to me, and he said, Mildred, he said, do you know what's in this book? Do you know what's in this book? He said a second time, and I thought, oh, my God, I left my fourth step in there. <laughs> it was not the wonders of my fourth step in the book. It was the wonders of the program enunciated in that book laid out there. Because he went on to tell me, and two big cheer tears rolled down his cheeks, he went on to tell me that, indeed, he had had a brother who was an alcoholic, a brother who used to sit in the church where he was preaching, and he would wet his pants in front of the whole community, and who did all kinds of things, and that his father was a minister, he was a minister, and he said, despite everything that we had done, we could not help this man, and he died of his alcoholism, and he said, you know, if he could have found this program, if he could have found this book, he said, I just wonder if he might have stayed alive, and he could have died sober with dignity. Well, it certainly set me uh, to thinking about the wonders of what I have here as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't, you know, alcoholism shouldn't happen to a nice girl like me. I was born into a good family. My people were hard-working people. They were pioneers in Saskatchewan, had come from a place 26 miles from the White House, wanted to go to Saskatchewan to be pioneers, get some land, be wheat farmers, and so they picked up and that's where they went. And so I had a very good family, ten of us, and I had decent parents. I didn't think, think it then, 
But I realize now I had amazing parents. But I didn't appreciate that. I hated my life. I hated being German. I hated being Roman Catholic. I hated being the youngest of ten kids. I hated the farm. I hated Saskatchewan. Other than that, other everything was just wonderful. <laughs> but what really, I think, put the kink in my life was the fact that I have a retarded sister. Now, when I was about three, I became aware that she was crawling into bed with me at night, and she would cry, and she knew she was retarded and that she was different, and she would say to me, Mildred, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die in the cradle? And I, she would lie there and cry, and I would lie and cry with her. And, you know, I think it did to my spirit what you would do to my body if you took a two-by-four and whacked me across the back as hard as you could. It influenced the way I behaved. It influenced the way I thought. It influenced the way I felt. Note, I did not say it made me an alcoholic. I am not an alcoholic because I have a retarded sister. But I think the stuff that happened to me as a little kid is the stuff that I have had to do in recovery to overcome what happened to me because I became very self-willed. I became very angry at God. I hated the world because I saw my sister cry every night. And I guess of all the people that I'm close to in the world, I'm closest to her. And I felt that I should be able to fix her, and I couldn't fix her. I couldn't get anybody else to make life better for her. I understand this today, but at three, I did not understand this. It was just blatant suffering as far as I was concerned. And um, I became very determined to have my own way. Sandy talked about this last night that the world doesn't go my way, that I have to go the way of the world and live in harmony with the way things are. And I had no idea about that because I was going to break everything that came into my path to fix what I thought was not right. You know, about three years ago, reading the big book, the part on step three where it talks about self being the problem and self-centeredness and that this will kill us, God allows that to happen, I saw myself marching across the pages of the big book, and it says sometimes we in our self-centeredness are trying to do good things. I wanted good things. If you had a sister that was crying, wouldn't you want to fix her? That's a very good thing, but I have learned in sobriety that your journey is not my business. Even my journey is not my business. To suit up and show up for my life, that is my business. To let God grow me into what it is that I am indeed to be. And so I meddled in her life. At about five, I found alcohol. I'm a late bloomer, as you can see. <laughs> and I think that after I had my first drink, I never thought sober again. My total preoccupation was with, where's the booze? Who has it? What am I going to have to do so they will give it to me? How much is there? Will it be enough? I mean, and who is an alcoholic ever says enough anyway? Like, and I never bothered about the niceties. Like, I think we should chill this. I think we need to drink this out of the proper glass. I can't ever remember saying, I've had enough, or I'm starting to feel this. When I was starting to feel it was when I wanted more. You know, and this business of having enough, I could be drunk, I could be lying on the floor looking at the ceiling, and if you said to me, do you want a drink, you know what I'd say. Of course, make it a triple. What else? There never was enough. See, this is why I think that in every bottle of spirits, 
with a small s. I was seeking the spirit with a capital S. There isn't enough booze to fill what's wrong with me. There isn't enough booze to ease the pain in my life. There isn't enough booze to make me happy enough. There isn't enough booze to give me all the stuff that I think or I thought in those days was going to quell the pain because there was no peace in all of that. Now, with all that, my brothers and sisters used to say to me, you're so smart. You see, but by this time, I had put up the walls. As I perceived them, they weren't doing much to help Dora. And if you didn't do anything to help Dora, as far as I was concerned, you didn't exist. And I put up the walls because life hurt too much. It just hurt too much. And it, it didn't even help to try and talk to people because they didn't understand anyway. See, my brothers and sisters were all a lot older. My brothers by this time were teenagers. And I can imagine now from a perspective of an adult, I can understand that she was probably an embarrassment to them. You know, we've talked about it since. It's taken a long time. Because in my family, we didn't talk about the rhinoceros we had in the living room. We didn't talk about the alcoholism in, the, in our family, and we didn't talk about the retarded sister in our family. We just all went about our business doing our things, and I say that not as a criticism of them. Because, you know, I look at them now, and I see them since my perception has changed, I see my family completely differently. And I can understand them with compassion, and I see that they're on their journey too, just like I am. And because we felt differently about life, doesn't put nasty, doesn't make me put nasty labels on them, like they're dysfunctional and they they have no love and they're loveless and all the kind of things. Although for years I blamed them, I blamed them for me. I said if they had been different, then I would have been different. And of course. That's been one of the gifts of the program, to realize that I carry me around with me and you are not my problem. I do not have to judge you today. I do not have to criticize you today. I don't have to carry the weight of you on my shoulders. I can just do what we do best here, and that we love one another, and we understand one another, and we have compassion for one another. I don't like the word tolerance. I think tolerance is really a very hard, hard term. If I have lived the path that I have lived, I don't need to have tolerance for you. I can believe that anything is possible and that it is possible for me to do anything. And if I haven't done it, I need to add the word yet. Because all I need to do is pick up a drink and I can go the rest of the way. I was a smart kid. And so by the time I was 11, I was ready for high school. My father sent me to a common boarding school and I saw nuns. And I thought, oh my God, this must be like being buried alive. <laughs> By 16, you see, my alcoholism was progressing. By 15, I had finished high school. And my father said, you know, because there was money in our family now, and my father said, you can do anything you like. And I really wanted to become a lawyer. But this now, this has all come to me in the last three years, a real understanding of this. It's not important other than I know now why I didn't go. I was filled with fear. I was afraid of life. I was afraid to take risks. I was afraid to be myself. And the person that kept you out also hid behind these walls. I didn't know how to make connections with people. I didn't know how to go out and take 
the risks that were involved in going to strange places with strange people. By the time I was 16, they were finding me in the haystack alone. It's all right to, for the farmer's daughter to be found in the haystack if she's not alone, but the farmer's daughter shouldn't be in the haystack with a bottle of booze. So at 18, I joined the convent. I could tell you stories about that, and we could go on the whole rest of this, this time that I talked to you. If you think it's difficult keeping uh, drunk and keep, you know, hiding your booze from a wife or a husband or a mother or a father, try doing it with a mother superior. <laughs> In the early 1950s, that was the best kept secret. In all those 15 years that I was there, nobody ever mentioned alcohol to me. And yet I was hospitalized many times and I found out subsequently that they were monitoring my under the mattress, all my hiding places. You know, the one place they never thought of was the bell tower of the church, thank goodness. Because that's where I hid my booze and that's where I hid my empties and then I did all the jobs in the church. I was organist in two churches, I had three choirs, I trained the junior servers and the senior servers. I decorated the altars, did the altar linens and hid my alcoholism from the parish priest, blaming the di disappearance of the mass wine on mass the servers, <laughs> at the same time that he was doing the same to me. So I guess that parish man <laughs> was kind of badly served for a while. <laughs> In 1966, I left on January the 10th. You know, Mother Superior didn't know what to do with me. And one day, you know, I had been home from my father's funeral, disgraced myself, and when I got back, she said, would you like to leave the convent? Oh, Mother Superior, for God's sake, of course I want to leave the convent. But you know, if you'd have said to me at that time, where do you want to be on the planet? I couldn't have told you, but I just knew it was running, 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 those geographical cures, not knowing that I was the problem, not knowing that I had to change the energy inside me, or rather let God change what was going on inside me. And I remember standing on the convent steps on January the 10th, 1966, and I thought it was all over, that some nice man was going to find me, and, and uh, we were just going to sail off into the sunset. And uh, it didn't happen that way. Instead, I found myself at the bars. I had no living skills. You see, when I started to drink at about five, I think my living skill, like my attempt to live well, completely stopped. And so when I got sober, I was about five years old emotionally, and yes, I have not had an easy time in the program because I've been, you know, a woman with a five-year-old mentality at times, and that really doesn't equip you for a whole lot of success. Um, I found myself at the bars. I found myself drinking with lower companions, and it wasn't long before I was the lower companion, and people would run when they saw me come because I was such bad news. And that went on for about 10 months. I lost my ambition. I had always been a student who always prided myself. See, and that was another thing. I was a functioning alcoholic. As long as I had a job, I could function, and that was my reason for drinking. So I said, I work so hard, I do so much good for people, and that's why I drink, and I need the booze so that I can carry on. But I lost my ambition. I didn't care. I was taking courses and I was teaching in another college. And I dropped my courses and I stopped teaching. And then I wound up in an insane asylum. And uh, there my brothers and sisters found me and they took me back to the West. And there I met the man who was to become my husband, a psychiatrist. Does that surprise you? <laughs> he was a professor at the university and he was on staff. 
He was also an alcoholic and at that time was sober. And he, while I was still a patient, can you believe this, asked me out on a date. And I accepted. You know, I was about three bricks short of a loan, but I think he was too. <laughs> I have a friend in, in California who puts it this way. He says their neuroses were complimentary. The rocks in his head fit the holes in hers. <laughs> together for seven years and let me just say those were seven colorful years he tried to fix me with psychiatry and I tried to fix him with religion and you can imagine there were bizarre events aplenty we were together seven years and in those seven years we moved 35 times it wasn't this time that I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and Cease became my sponsor and uh, you know I was doing all the things on the outside you know, we can do that even in Alcoholics Anonymous. We can do all the outside things. I was going to meetings. I had a sponsor. I was reading the book, How Much Can You Read When You're Stoned? I did a fourth step, believe it or not. And uh, they even let me go out to the women's jail. I guess I carried the disease rather than the message, but I went anyway. Five and a half years of that. And you know, when I say compassion, not tolerance, I received compassion from the people in AA because nobody ever said to me, you're a jerk, you're not doing things the way we, you should be doing. Cease used to say, well, one of these days, maybe you'll do it the AA way. And that's about, they accepted me. They let me come to the meetings. And my life depended on that. I went to, back to drinking for a year and a half. Now, you, you know, you may be sitting out there and saying, well, I can't identify with that. Well, of course you can't, darling. Of course you can't identify with that. How many ex-nuns are there in the room? <laughs> you know, how many people are there who've had 30-some-odd shock treatments? And so on and so on. But the drama of my life is not the essence of my alcoholism. The essence of my alcoholism, I think, is very simply and very clearly laid down in the big book as it was taught to me by Cease and by others. If you put alcohol into my body, I can't guarantee what I'm going to do. Might not do much, I might do a whole lot of stuff. And I'm going to be out of control. I no longer can guarantee what I'm going to do. And after all the things that I have done and all the things that I have experienced, my mind can tell me this time it will be different. Somewhere in the big book it says we have a mind that can't think straight and that lacks proportion, and that's on a sober day. So you can imagine on a drunken day what went on here. But I've had the DTs, I've had convulsions, I've had 10-day blackouts, I've had alcoholic poisoning and uh, paralysis. None of that stopped me because on a given day, my mind could tell me this time it's going to be different. Now, there's a mind that lacks proportion and can't think straight. And I think that's why the book says there are days on which the alcoholic cannot guarantee, has no effective mental defense against the first drink. That defense must come from a power greater than ourselves. And on another place, it lays down, it's a daily reprieve that we have here. Not a monthly reprieve, not an annual reprieve, and not a lifetime reprieve. And that's why I'm here. You may think I'm here because I think you need me. Uh-uh. I need you. Every time I come in the door, that's what I'm saying. I need you guys. I never could do this by myself. I can't do it by myself now. I need you as much today 
almost 22 years sober as I did the first day that I ever darkened the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so, how did I get here? Well, May the 18th, I woke up, 1973. And uh, I couldn't move, and there were two men sitting at my, the foot of my bed, and they really were there. I was reflecting on this this morning when I was sitting there during the, the spiritual panel and hearing this music come out of the ceiling. And I thought, what else is new? <laughs> the doorknobs used to sing. They sang especially loud if I drank vanilla. They sang even louder if I drank Chanel number no. 5. I wasn't fussy. If I couldn't get the regular kind, you know, what was the regular kind? Anything that had alcohol in it. I didn't care what kind it was. I hear people talk in AA and they say, I only drank scotch or I only drank gin. I drank whatever had alcohol in it. And I guess if I'd known shoe polish had it in, I would have eaten that too. But, you know, I couldn't move the next day. And Sunday morning, I, I woke up and I remember thinking, I'm going to sign myself out of this joint. And I'm going to go home because I knew where the bottles were. And um, the nurse came in and she said, I'm taking you to breakfast this morning. And she took me to the washroom on the way. And I saw myself. I may not be a raving beauty now, but I was decidedly less of a raving beauty. I was black and blue right across my forehead and my eye was sticking out like this, purple. Right across down here, I was all black and blue and I had my teeth knocked out. And I started to cry, and I said to her, you know, I'm a woman of the street, aren't I? That's what I've become. And she said, well, I guess you, you said it. She took me to breakfast, and after breakfast took me back to my room. And while I was there, I considered my options. I remember sitting on the bed thinking to myself, what can I do? I can't go on this way. And I thought, am I going to go home to the prairies and beg charity for my family? And they won't let me drink. See, I'm not the first alcoholic in my family. My maternal grandfather died of alcoholism. Two of my uncles, one was shot and one drowned in, in uh, drunken, drunken accidents. I have a brother who is now sober 43 or 44 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. So my family had been through, they knew a lot about this disease. And uh, they sure would not have let me drink. And uh, I thought, am I going to the streets? Is that how I'm going to spend the rest of my life? Or am I going to live down on Skid Row on welfare? And none of those seemed viable options. And at that moment, a power so great that I cannot describe it to you came into the room. And I can only describe this to you in hindsight because at the time, I really just went with what was going on. And removed from me the compulsion to drink. And in the doctor's opinion, it talks about an entire psychic change. And I have to believe that I had an entire psychic change that day. Because from that day to this, taking a drink of alcohol has never seemed a viable option. And that is not the way I had lived my life. Alcohol was my answer. It was my solution to joy, to pain, to everything that happened. And I was so overcome with this, this feeling that I remember saying, I won't drink. And if you will send somebody to me, 
I don't know how to live. I will do whatever they tell me. And I swear to you as I stand here, there was a rap on the door that fast. And a man stood there. And he said to me, are you an alcoholic? I saw you at breakfast. Now, you know, let's not get spiritual too fast. I said to him, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I said, you want to make something of it? <laughs> he said, no, no. He said, I just came to see if I could be of help. He said, I wondered if you wanted to go to an AA meeting. AA, you got to be kidding. you got to be kidding. I went regularly for five and a half years, and they couldn't help me. That was my answer to him. You see, I still believed that help was out there. Somebody out there should fix what was wrong with me. Somebody out there should have fixed Dora. Somebody else out there should have fixed my feelings. Somebody out there should make the pain of life go away. And even Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't, I, I just, I said to him, no, indeed not. I'm not that bad. He said, well, would you go to, to Donwood? I said, what's that? He said, well, it's a hospital for alcoholics. Dr. Bell was one of the, one of the forerunners in Canada, and maybe in North America, a building providing decent health care for alcoholics. And uh, I said, okay, I'll go. And that's how I got here. I went to Donwood. And they certainly did not insist on Alcoholics Anonymous, and I stayed away for six months. I had come there with my stuff in a plastic bag in a suitcase. You know, so really, we were bankrupt. My husband was ill, too. He followed me into Donwood. Oh, there's so many, many, many stories I could tell you. We were so poor. And I want to tell you a little bit about that, because it was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Poverty. I had never known before. Of all the other things that I didn't have control of, one way or another, I was always looked after. My physical needs were looked after. And now there was nothing between us and disaster. The house was gone. The gardener was gone. Everything was gone. The door was locked. And I had what I had in the plastic bag in the suitcase. And my husband was a sicker, sicker than I was. And like Sandy said last night, I thought money was the answer. And I remember that first month that I was sober, thinking, if he will only go through Donwood, he will get well, he will get a job, he will make lots of money, and when we have money, then we can really get into getting well. My old ideas didn't go that way. I had to submit to poverty. I had to submit to not, not having enough to eat. I didn't have the brains to go to a social welfare agency. And uh, I remember standing in the snowbanks with a little pair of slippers on because I didn't have boots. My psychiatrist said to me one day, see, and then the people started coming into my life that, that helped to turn me around as sick as I was then. I went to my psychiatrist one day and I told him that I'd been planning suicide the night before. And he said, Mildred, said, you know, the show is up. If you want to commit suicide, go ahead, but quit your goddamn whining. <laughs> he wasn't telling me to kill myself. He said, if you want to get help, I'll help you. But he said, you are going to have to start living in a different way. You are going to start to behave differently. I remember an AA member who came charging into my place one day to tell me that I was the most self-centered, unpleasant person that it had ever been her misfortune to meet. And I said to her, you can't talk like that. I'm an ex-nun. And she said, watch me. 
And she went up one side of me and down the other, and she told me some things about myself that I didn't want to hear. But you'll notice, I'm not telling you about the people who said, sweetheart, you don't have to do anything. You just come here and don't drink and go to meetings, and that's all you have to do, and you're going to be just fine. I don't know what God's dispensation is, but I do know that I had to do more than that. Six months down the road, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Our friends were gone. We were desperately lonely, and I sneaked into the back of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I remember the man at the front, an older man with a white beard, never could get a year's sobriety. Well, no, that's not true. He never could get two years sobriety. He was around a 21 years. Died drunk, but carried the message to more people than, I, than a whole lot of other people who had been continuously sober. He saw me come in. And he came to the back of the room, and he put his arms around me, and he said, Come on in, kid. You're welcome. And nobody made a big fuss about me, and I kept coming back, because this place was better than anything that I knew. We were living down on Skid Row. I hadn't known there were such places, and I'm cold sober, and I see it all. And I'm sober, and I'm staying sober, and I don't want to drink. So coming to a meeting was a wonderful boon for me, and the healing process started, which is one of the things I think the fellowship is all about. And uh, I was here about three months, and I'm sober now about nine months, and I loved it. I just would have, if I could have, I would have been at a meeting not 24 hours a day. But you know, I couldn't take you home with me. My first sponsor had gotten drunk. And so I followed two guys around, and I knew I had to do the steps. I just knew it. You know, I would come into the rooms, and I could get out of my head for a little while. I could stop supervising my life for a little while. I could lay down my bag of troubles for a little while. But you know, when I went home, I always had to carry it with me. I didn't know that I could leave it here. But I'd take it with me and wake up about 3 o'clock in the morning saying, What's happening now? You know, filled with this fear. Where's my life going? Where? How are my husband and I going to survive? Because he was by now sitting at home saying, I'm, I'm depressed. I can't go look for a job. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I got into the steps. And these two guys had been sober two years. And they told me what to read and they told me what to do. And I wanted it so bad I could taste it. Because I knew you had something that I wanted in my life. And I knew that just going to meetings wasn't giving it to me. Just as there had been no peace in any of that old life, there was no peace in any of the new life other than being at meetings. And I knew that I had to find a way to get it inside myself. And so I did the steps. I still have my first fourth step. I don't know, it just got buried under something. And I picked it out a couple of months ago and I thought, you know, it wasn't bad. I saw for the first time what was really wrong with me. I saw that I was what was wrong with me. Self was what was wrong with me. And I had never known that before. In my fourth column of my fourth step, there it was. I had options. When my father yelled, I didn't have to be a liar and a cheat and become a people pleaser. I, those were things that I had chosen to do. I didn't have to drink and I didn't have to do all the things that I saw as a pattern in my fourth column. I got to the end of the ninth step and I thought I was cured. I thought that I'd done the steps and that I should be okay. 
This is why I love the theme of your conference, the continuing of the journey. Because at that point, the steps had done for me what I was able to accept. How many of you knew Mac Cheater from Winnipeg? There must be some of you. He was just a wonderful man. He was, I know Dave knows him. Um, he was one of our trustees from the West. And when you looked at Mac, you sort of looked into the face of God. That's the way you felt. And I knew that Mac had the answers. And I had not done my first nine steps, and I followed Mac. He used to come to Toronto to see me. And I would say to Mac, Mac, how do you meditate? What books do you read? Like, I wanted Mac to tell me what Mac did, and then I was going to follow what Mac did, and I was going to become a little Mac cat, and don't you know, all the pain of my life was going to go away. And Mac wouldn't have any part of that. He said, Mildred, you do steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. And that's all he would say. And he said, one of these days, you will know what I'm saying. You have to become your own person. Alcoholism, as Gracie said yesterday, is a disease, not a disgrace. And it was about this time I got another teaching job. I had been thrown out of the last one. And you know, sometimes we alcoholics, we don't ask. I had so little going for me at this time. I was afraid to ask anybody if I had been blackballed in my profession. I just one day heard the voice say, go get the paper, see if there are any teaching jobs. And I did it. I was put together that morning as I, as I am this morning. And um, they gave me the job. They said, yes, we want you. It was for an English teacher. What I didn't know was that it was for dealing with adolescents with learning disabilities. And you know what? For 20 years, I got to do for other ki people's kids what somebody didn't do for my sister. And it was absolutely a gift of God, I have to tell you. Because I didn't even see that that's what the ad said. All I saw was English teacher, and that's my specialty. And I thought, that's for me. And that's the job I got. And I stayed there. And those people in that school, none of whom had a drinking problem, are part of my benefactors. They were my mentors as well as the people in AA. Because I didn't know how to behave. My emotions were up and down and up and down and up and down. I was a little kid emotionally. And they would take me aside and they would tell me things and they would teach me. And I'm as grateful to them as I am to some of the folks in Alcoholics Anonymous who took me aside and had compassion for me. I stayed in that school for 20 years. It was the one thing in my life that stayed stable. Everything else changed. A year and a half into sobriety, I left my husband. You know, I think it's great if you can stay in your relationships and heal there. I said to him one day, do you still blame me for everything that happened? And he looked at me and he said, well, about 95%. I've been around the age to know by this time that I had to take full responsibility for myself. But I, and I also knew that I did not have to take responsibility for you anymore. The yoke was off my neck. And I just didn't think I could cope with that. So I left. Did what my sponsor said? Stay out of relationships, not in your life, baby. Three weeks later, I had him all picked out of the group. He was handsome. He was rich. He was well-spoken. He was for me. He couldn't stay sober. Small problem. <laughs> I know how to stay sober, and by God, you're going to learn. Until <laughs> one day, I found myself standing over him and part of my rude word. But he was saying, Mildred, go get me some beer. And I'm saying, no. Pray, because I thought if you'd only pray, you'll get sober and the good life will descend on us. And I, there he is lying on the bed. I've got him by the ears. 
pounding his head on the bed saying, play, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and then I, too, went to Al-Anon. <laughs> you know, if you're an alcoholic and you have no understanding of how you roar through the lives of others like a tornado, I have a, I have a plan of action for you. Fall in love with the drinking alcoholic. They will teach you very quickly and very efficiently. Well, after that little episode, I realized my insanity. I'm sober four years. You know, I see people now nine, nine months sober, a year sober, two years sober, and I think back to my days. And all I have to do is go to some of the older members in Toronto and they say yes. We remember you when you came in. We never saw anybody crazier than you were. <laughs> so it's a good remember when. My sponsor but this time said to me now, he said, you stay clear of reading. He said, give yourself time to heal. Give yourself time to find out who you are. And I did. Because he, uh, he was a tough sponsor and I listened to him. I had respect for him. And then life went on and I met a beautiful man and... Um, started getting into real estate, started making a lot of money, was speaking at conferences, active in service, going to meetings. I, too, have always had a home group, always been active in the same home group, always had sponsors. I've had three different sponsors for one reason and another. And um, life was going great. And then about seven years, I started to feel unhappy, restless, irritable, and discontented again. My sponsor said, out with the book, and we did the steps again. And I discovered something. You see, for me, it's been a progressive, it's a progressive growth. I didn't know that I had pounded down my feelings. I didn't know that I had rage. Like, somewhere I knew, and somewhere I didn't. And when we did, when I did my fourth step, and then my fifth and we got into six and seven and eight and nine, this rage came out. And it was a necessary process. You know, I was like Miss Goody Two-Shoes walking around the earth with this stuff buried in me. You know, so we, we think sometimes that it's not there because we don't see it, or we think we don't see it, but it's there and it's buried alive. And it came out in raging color. And you know, when it was all finished, it felt great because I, I had let go another piece of that self that had been such a has been such a problem. And then 17 years I'm sober, and I'm at a conference in the South, and I overhear a conversation. You know, I swear God arranges this universe in such a perfect way that if you keep your ears and eyes open, you just are awestruck almost every day. A casual conversation about people who, from people who were doing the steps and the big book studies. That's all. But I remember hearing it, and I remember thinking, that's not for me. I've done the steps. I read the book. If you want to stay where you are, assume you're perfect. If you want to stay where you are, assume you know it all. And I went home, and it wouldn't let me rest. Big book study, do the steps. Big book study, it was just there all the time. And finally, I called my sponsor and I said, let's get to it again. I said, I have no peace with this. And we got to it. And, you know, 
it was the preparation for a whole change of my life. For the last months, which have been the sweetest of my existence, you know, I had to come to terms with all that stuff with Dora. I hadn't realized how it had damaged me and that self was still clogged in me and determining uh, so much of what it was that I was doing. And um, I had to let go of that relationship, wonderful as it was, because I was behind the walls. You know, I'm trying to be very truthful about this. I stood, I sat behind those walls and tried to have an intimate relationship, and it doesn't work. What you do is tell a lot of lies, you pretend to be somebody that you are, and then you wonder why you're not getting closer together. You wonder why you don't feel good. You wonder why this relationship is not the blessing that you see in, in Alcoholics Anonymous when people say, we've been together like Dave and Gracie 52 years, and you can see the closeness. And I had to get honest about that. And then one day I was sitting there, and I knew that I had to retire. That, that was another thing I was holding on to. I was holding on to my job. Because as long as I could be a functioning alcoholic, and as long as I could be a functioning sober alcoholic, I had a place to go. I had a place that gave me stability, and I knew I had to let it go. I knew as if it had been written on the wall. So within a, a year, I guess, life as I had known it all my life changed completely. And I found myself swimming in waters that I did not understand where there were no known guideposts from a personal perspective. There certainly were always the guideposts of the things in Alcoholics Anonymous that had worked, and I had to hang on to those as tight as I've ever hung on to them, or hung on to anything. And out of this has come for me a new understanding and a new life. See, I think that somewhere in my world, I always thought that life would be good if I could have God and money, God and property, God and prestige, God and friends, God and my, my own self, my own self-will and the way I wanted to do things. And you know, within a year it was all ripped from me. Watch out when you say the third step prayer and you say, relieve me of the bondage of self. You just might do it. And then where do you go with this? Some amazing things happened to me. I went to make a retreat in the States, and I went to see a minister. I'm 21 years, 20 years sober, 21 years sober at this time. And uh, he said, you know, Mildred, I don't think you ever really accepted yourself. He said, I don't think Dora ever accepted herself, and you've never accepted yourself. And I knew he told me the truth. And he said, you know what I would suggest to you? He said, I would suggest to you that for 40 days you meditate on nothing but God. Don't ask for anything. Just ask that you have a better understanding of God in your life. And don't attach it to anything. He might as well have been reading our step 11, eh? Because that's really what step 11 says, that we meditate and pray for our conscious contact with God as we understand him. And I went home and did that. And I'm not going to tell you things changed overnight, but things did change. I was the one that had to suit up and show up. And I don't even think that the emphasis is on me. Like, 
that isn't the way I think the spiritual life works. The thing that I've become most aware of is that I am without power. Like if at any time in my 21 years you had asked me what was going on, I would have given you quite a different version from what I'm giving you this morning. My journey has been to learn that I do not have power. I knew that I did not have power over alcohol. I knew that I did not have power over this body and that I did not have power over this mind, but I did not understand the implications of that. If you look at the big book, did you ever realize how little it says about God in the big book? And I think it was Sandy last night said, it talks about our need for God. And if I think that I know how to run my life and that I have power, then I don't need God. I had to be brought to a place where I knew not only that my body is alcoholic, that my mind can't think straight and lacks proportion, but I had to see the implications of that in life, that I do not even have power over my own growth, and that if I will suit up and show up, this great power comes into my life and does for me what I cannot do for myself. See, when I do some meditating on being powerless, it becomes very easy to move on to step two and to come to believe, because if I truly know that I don't have power, I go looking for power. Not the ego substitutes, the God and stuff, God period. So that in having God, I will have all things. And step two says we come to believe that this great power, whatever we conceive it to be, whether it be the sponsor, the group, Alcoholics Anonymous as such, a friend, whether it be a minister, and finally, this power that we come to understand, God as we understand him, came to believe that this power could restore me to sanity. I think they left out a word. I think they believed we would be smart enough to figure out that it's not my sanity I'm going to be restored to, but I'm going to be restored to its sanity, its order. And you see, I don't know the agenda for my life. I always thought I did. You see, and I thought if I could look at those steps and I could just do the steps and then I would do the traditions and I would live by the legacies and I all this kind of stuff, the emphasis was on me. And the last couple of years have showed me that the emphasis has to be shifted to God and that God does this and that I've come to believe that I can be restored to the order that God sees is important in my life. You see, in step seven, we say, my creator, I'm willing you should have all of me, the good and the bad. Don't have to judge it anymore. Why? Because if it's all given to God, I understand now that some things that look good to, to me are really the things that look good to my ego. I don't want pain. I want money. I want all that kind of stuff. And that some of the things that look bad, suffering doesn't look very good to the ego, does it? Suffering can really be a very good thing if I understand what suffering is. I used to think that suffering was God's gift. I don't believe that anymore. I think suffering is the way the universe reminds me that I'm out of harmony. And it's not sent by God. And it's not sent by my neighbor. Because I don't believe you have the power to hurt me. And I don't believe the way I see the world today that you have the power to help me. What you have is the power to take me by the hand and walk with me and support me and give me your strength and share with me the strength that you have, but you don't have the power to run my life. And I don't have the power to run yours, and I don't have the power to run my own. And that's why 
the things that I thought were good, I don't know what they are in my life anymore. And the things that I thought were bad, I don't know what they are either anymore. If I just, it's just worked out so well. If I suit up and show up for the things that I am committed to do, and do them to the best of my ability, and stay in the now, a magical thing has happened to me. I love the fact that I'm powerless. Not my ego doesn't love it, but the real me, that me that Chuck Chamberlain spoke of when he said, Miss Mildred, you are already everything that you can be. Isn't that really what our book says? Make your choice. Either God is or he isn't. Pick. Either God is everything or he's nothing. Now, everything is everything. Isn't that something else? And it says that this great reality lives within. And isn't that what this whole story of the prodigal son was about? The prodigal didn't have to change and become a different kind of being. He already was the son of the father. What he had to do was come to himself and realize who he was. I find that something that really helps me a great deal is to do steps one, two, and three very specifically. I know they're included in 10, 11, and 12, but a thick head like me needs to do them one, and then two, and then three every morning because it allows me to shed that cloak of self-centeredness and that, that determination that the world should be my way, and it's easier for me to go the way of the world and to be in harmony with the universe instead of demanding that things be the way I think they should be. Out of it has come a sweetness. Out of it has come, I'm not totally free of fear, I won't say that. But I can tell you when I first retired, when I closed the school door, I was a mass of fear. Absolutely, a, a, like I looked out at the world and I said, what is there? It's the end of life as I know it, and it was. It was the end of life as I knew it, because a new level of existence was to come if I would cooperate with it. And you know, last uh, July the 31st, I lay in bed one day thinking, I wonder if it's really all worth it. But you know, that's why I think I have to keep coming back. Continue the journey. I don't care what your burdens are today. Keep coming back. Don't stop a day before the miracle. Don't give up because if you're sober, if you even want to be sober, let that miracle be the, the prototype for every other miracle that God can, can um, do in your life. You know, I look out at you. I go out, you know, at my own home group. I look at my sponsees. I look at myself. I look at my brother. I look at everybody that's sober in the universe. And you're alcoholic like I'm alcoholic. And you're sober. And you know, if I see the, the, the window is open and the, and the drapes are flapping, I don't see the wind, but I know the wind is there because something is happening. And I get into an airplane and we're able to take off. And I think that has something to do with the wind currents, even though I don't see them. It seems there's nothingness there, but there's air there. And so... I don't see God come into this room, you know. Sandy, I, I mean, I, I can't explain it as well, I think, as he explained it last night. We don't see. We come in and we take actions that we don't believe in, and the miracle happens. You know, and that's why 
We can't afford to screw around in this head. I can't. Because if I try to figure things out and I try to analyze and I try all that stuff and I've had hundreds of hours of that kind of stuff, all it gets me to is a point where I can see where you're wrong and where I'm wrong and there's no, there's no peace in that. The book says we gained access to the power greater than ourselves. The book says we can face and be rid of those things that had been blocking us. And just like the prodigal son, what did he have to do? He came to himself. He said, you know, I'll go home and I'll be a servant in the household if I have to. I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned before heaven and against thee, and I am not worthy to be called thy child. Let me now be a servant in my household. That last part he never got to he never got to say, because it's an impossibility for the son to be the servant in the household. A son is a son, and when he was yet a long way off, you know, the father didn't come to the pig pen together. The son had to be come out of there. He had to get out of there first. And then the father said, get the robe, get the ring, get, kill the fatted calf, and make a party, because this, my child, was lost and is come home. And I believe that the angels in heaven rejoice when one of us comes home. And I think we do that every day. It's not just the first time we come in here, but every day when we sit here and we are willing to acknowledge, I am powerless, God. I rely on you to restore me to your order. I give my day to you. These are the things I have planned to do. And whatever it is that you wish Ways for me to grow, things for me to do, I will accept them as your will for me. And life for me has changed from a drag. It has changed from being a burden to being something that I deeply love. That I'm having, I'm having a really good time today. Not everything is going my way. You know, the six foot four football player hasn't arrived yet. Uh, all my financial difficulties, you know, have not gone through the courts yet. And there's, there's lots of stuff, but that's all stuff. If I were to die today and go to the grave, what would it matter? And, you know, I think sometimes the grave is a great teacher because the grave shows us what is ego stuff and what is this part in us, this God within, the great reality that lives within, because the great reality that lives within is just fine when we go to the grave. It's the ego stuff that, only the ego stuff that has to stay behind. So, what can I say to you? How can I say this to you? My gratitude for being an alcoholic, but more than that, that this wonderful program is here, and that you allow me, that you allow me and invite me into these rooms, and that you share with me, and you love me. I can tell you that the person that was here on the planet 22 years ago today, it's the same body, basically. I have the same name, but I don't, I don't live the same. I don't think the same. I don't feel the same. And self has taken on a different proportion. I have truly found the arch through which I may walk a free person. And I thank you for all the numerous gifts that are mine today. And I thank you for being here, and I wish for you the light and the peace and the love that live within you that they may comfort you today and always. Thank you.
No ideas of coming into AA. But I share this because what God does for folks like us is cut right through the noise. And when we're we're desperate enough, God will respond to that when the plea is sincere and there's no bargaining chips, no reservation, no lurking notion, just a plea to save my life. And what happened to me when I collapsed on the floor was this very same power I had cursed out, I had mocked and spat out. And if you were a man and were religious, if you were a man and went to church, if you were a man and talked about God, you were weak and cowardly and I condemned you. And here I was in this moment, June 23rd, 19, begging that same power to please take me from this, and my words were this, please take me from this, I don't want to die. And that is much more as I can be in that moment. There were no bargaining chips, I was a homeless bum, literally a homeless bum. I just didn't want to die. I wasn't trying to get sober for the relationship, for the job, my reputation, and make some money, nothing, I just don't want to die. And that's as honest as I might be for the rest of my life until God calls me home. And then something indescribably wonderful happened to me, which will happen to us while we're drinking, coming in here, and will happen to us while we're sober. When we're running around alcoholics and I'm untreated. I made a plea to God, take me from this, I don't want to die. And what I heard in my left ear, this whisper, this thunder of silence, it was kind of like that, cut through everything, was the following. Enough, I have other work for you to do. It was as if someone leaned over in my ear and whispered. And I was petrified by this event. Because people in Alcoholics Anonymous and people in treatment centers told me, Peter, you're going to drink yourself into wet brain. And before you get to wet brain, you're going to start to hear things and see things and have delusions and illusions about a lot of things in life. And when I heard this voice in this year, I says, oh my God, I bought the farm. This is exactly what they were talking about. I'm completely out of my mind. Here's the good news. When I heard that voice, I was completely out of my mind. And I pray that this mind never returns. And I pray everyone in this room, that you leave your mind in this room and you go home without it and never returns again. Because only when I'm out of my mind can I hear this sacred voice. It's when I'm in my mind, I'm listening to me. I'm listening to the chatter of a thousand voices. I'm listening to fear and ego and insecurity and pomp and worship of other things. And it goes on ad infinitum. But when we're out of our mind, something happens. I hear a different voice. I hear a different voice. And that's what happened to me June 23rd, 19th. I was struck sober. I had a moment of clarity, wholeness of mind. I got to hear truth. I've heard many times in Alcoholics Anonymous, the truth will set you free. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. I never knew what the truth was. The good news is I do know what the truth is. He, this power called God, is the truth. No God, no, no freedom. And sometimes it comes in the worst moment of our life. On June 23rd, 1988, I was given my GOD, a gift of desperation. It was a gift from God. I didn't feel that way. It felt very painful June 23rd, 1980, but I've come to find out that because it's painful doesn't mean it's bad. I would get painful things happen to me thinking God sent me the trials of Job for God's sake. But what God was doing was cutting away everything and bringing me to the edge of a cliff, and I begged God for help, and he placed me in my seven treatment center. And I'm here with you tonight. Talk about the age of miracles still with us. I will not apologize for this power called God or this big one. In fact, in AA, we ought to be a pep rally for the power of God and shout the good news for the sick and suffering walking the door who can't find their way home. And they make it to us, and we offer something. We transmit what was freely given to us. It's called the message in Alcoholics Anonymous, where we get reborn and resurrected in the sacred rooms. How's that? for alcoholics and I'm missing God. I'm so grateful I was here for it. 
to tell you in a general way what it was like, what happened, and how I'm trying to be today. I picked up my first drink. I was about 14 years old. I grew up in a town called Brooklyn, New York, an uh, area called Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, New York, where we turned how it works into how you doing. Um, <laughs> was the area. The only requirement for membership there is a pinky ring, sunglasses, and gold jewelry. And I remember I was about 14 years old, and I was hanging out on the corner. I loved hanging out with older men, uh, men who were worldly and knowledgeable. They were like 16 and 17. <laughs> and we were hanging out on the corner with this one night, and they were drinking cold 45 beer. I was very reluctant to drink with them. I had a guy at home who was coming back from the powerful. I called him Dad. This was the alpha male, the Tony Soprano, the guy. In fact, my dad made Tony Soprano look like Tinkerbell. That's a whole other story. This was a man's man. And he would look at you right in the eye if you blinked. You were lying. I was blinking all the time. I was just so afraid of this man. He gave me very stern warnings about not drinking with those bums on the corner. So I didn't until this one Saturday night rolled around. And they were drinking cold 45 beer. I was driven by a hundred forms of fear back then. I was insecure, fear-based. I look back on my life, I was walking around with one ear clogged and one eye closed and trying to make decisions based on living in the dark. Trying to make decisions with perceptions that were deluded. Having opinions with, with, no, with no experience and I was just trying to figure out my way as went along. And here I was this one Saturday night, my friends are drinking cold 45 beer. I was completely lost because about six months earlier, my mom was one of us. Her name was Josephine. My mom drank herself to a place of committing suicide when I was 14, after many attempts. It was very challenging growing up with a mom who was always in an emergency room or some psych ward. And she was drinking and taking value, and I remember her sitting with me telling me how much she wanted to die, but I'd be able to take care of my younger brothers and my dad, and I'm all but eight. And in January 1974, I woke up to sheer terror. It was the first time I ever heard my dad cry. And he was on a 911 call to the police saying, I think my wife is dead. And I remember being frozen with fear. Between ages 8 and 10, I had a distant relative who was sexually abusing me. My mom commits suicide. I got this guy home called dad who's larger than life. And that's not what makes me alcohol. That's just my circumstances. But I was walking around with a lot of stuff on the inside. And it wasn't like nowadays where you could sit down and go to therapy, go to Dr. Phil and tell everyone, you, you know. You just sucked it up. That doesn't mean I was well. And I was looking through the world through very hurtful and painful eyes. And I was hearing that way also. So when the court went around the first, second time, I put my hand in there and I took a few pops off the court and nothing happened. It was suzzy. And I took a few more pops and a few more pops and a few more, and then something indescribably wonderful happened to me. Bill says it best. I had arrived. And little by slowly, as I'm drinking cold 45 beer, I arrived. I had air back in my, my lungs again. I was present to the moment. I can talk to the girls, roughhouse with the guys. By midnight, I was Al Pacino. This was a beautiful thing. (laughs) 
why did I wait so long? It became a panacea for all my ills. I wasn't thinking about my mom and that terrible pain that took outside help to help me process through it with the steps. This guy at home who I didn't like and didn't like me, dad, and just all the torment, <clears throat> the sexual abuse stuff that I was hitting puberty and questioning my own sexuality. How can I let a man do this to me? It wasn't until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous that I found out how common this is, but we just don't talk about it. We talk about it in AA and fifth steps. We talk about it with the sponsor. So when I drank cold 45 beer, all of that went away. I got beer muscles. I got to be about 6'2 that night, about 220 pounds. I was something to look at when I'm drunk. It was beautiful. <laughs> Why are you laughing for? <clears throat> no consequences either, my first drunk. I went home that night, got up the next morning, I went down to the park to play ball with the older guys, and I had my stripes, I had my passage into manhood, I had a little drunk story. It was a wonderful thing, and I couldn't wait for the following Saturday to roll around to get lit up again, to capture that elusive feeling. Here's the problem. I think of a 14-year-old now who needs a drink to get through the day. I think of a 14-year-old uh, man or woman, a young boy or girl right now who's had sexual abuse or parents commit suicide and needs a drink to get through the week and has that kind of trauma and nowhere to process of it. Something's radically wrong with that picture. And there I was at 14. I was already lost. But Sue talked about it last night. Just lost. The young lady talked about it this afternoon. <clears throat> just lost. I was 14 without a clue and no one gave me a manual. That's just the way it was. But when I drank, everything was okay. I'm going to be okay. There was no more pain. I was present to the moment. It was electrifying. I had arrived. And my drinking, little by slowly, started to assume more serious proportions. It went from Saturday to Friday and Saturday to Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And little by slowly, I'm drinking during the week, and I start to experience consequences because of my drinking. See, our big book says years of living with an alcoholic will make any child or wife neurotic. The whole family has become ill. And little by slowly, my two brothers and my dad are not alcoholic, but they start to experience alcohols because I was infecting them. I can never step up to the plate here and say all I do is not drink and go to meetings and that is it, period. Because that would be really selfish of me and pretty arrogant of me to think that that's the remedy, just not drinking. What about the people I leveled on the way into? Not only my family, but anyone who came in contact with me. If you were in breathing distance of me, you were hurt by me. And not because I'm so powerful, but alcoholism infects people. It destroys people. In fact, most people in this room, we dodged a lot of bullets to get here. Most folks who suffer from what we suffer from don't survive. And the reality is, and I hate to be doom and gloom, the reality is this. If we all agree to meet here, everyone in this room next year, I wonder how many of us are going to be back here next year, and how many are going to be lost to alcoholism. I have a daily reprieve that hinges on my connection with God. And how many of our AA meetings, you don't even hear about God. You don't even hear about the big book of the 12 steps. In fact, don't bring in God because you might piss off a newcomer, and we're going to deny them the solution. Hmm? But I didn't know any of that back then. I just knew I drank and I felt absolutely wonderful. But there were consequences in my family. Two younger brothers who started to become afraid of me. And my dad wondered what was going on with him. I come from an Italian-American family. I'm the firstborn. The expectations were mild. Pope or president. <laughs> I landed in AA. 
I start to steal from my family who loved me. I start to knock her home and break curfew when there was no curfew when my dad was just hoping he didn't get a 911 call on his own son. And I was always taking things that didn't belong to her. I started to steal from my family, steal from my brother's little piggy banks from the top drawer and hold money. Got this big jar of quarters. I take that. Anything that wasn't nailed down was coming with me. And my alcoholic mind justified all of it. It was really okay. I'll make it up to them. And by now I'm like 17 and 18 and I'm drinking this way. And I'm just dishonest already. And one morning I woke up and I had no money. I couldn't find any money. I couldn't find any jewelry to take. But I found my dad's checkbook. And I had this fabulous idea. Well, see, fabulous at the time. <laughs> I'll forge his name and go down to the local store. Local grocery store. They all knew my dad. They were very afraid of my dad. They weren't going to give him any lip. And I made up the stories. My dad didn't have cash. He gave me his check. Can you cash it? Is anything for your pop? And they gave me 20 bucks off the check. I thought I hit Powerball or something. This was a great thing. So I walked out with some beer, and I did that again and again and again. See, I didn't know, because I was about shot as a bowling ball, I didn't know about checking statements. <laughs> See, I thought you wrote a check, and it just disappeared. <laughs> and then one day, my dad got his bank statement with a bunch of forged checks, and then he came looking for me. Now, this is not the type of man you want looking for you, even when he's happy. And he was never happy. It was a scene out of Goodfellas when he caught me. I was sitting in a car in Lower Manhattan next to this young lady crushing from the Brooklyn Bridge in Lower Manhattan. And my dad drove up and jumped out of the car and he screamed my name and I handled it like a man would. It sounded like this, honey, that's my dad, I'm running away, you talk to him. <laughs> and my dad called me and I went to my first treatment center. And I spent 28 days in treatment, not conceding to my innermost self I was an alcoholic. I didn't have a problem, I just got caught. And as soon as I walked into treatment, I played the mom committing suicide card. I played I'm afraid of my dad. I played my sex uh, uh, trauma issues to the hill. I played all of it. Even though it was very real, I used it. I used it as a mask. I used it as a cover-up of what was really going on inside. That I'm alcoholic already. But how can I work on a solution if I don't even concede to my own self I have a problem? The great thing about the program in this fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's not aimed at the mind, it's aimed at the spirit. If it was aimed at the mind, we'd be one big self-help group. But it's aimed at touching the spirit and awakening the spirit to give me a new bond, to give me new perceptions and conceptions about everything. But my first treatment center, that wasn't happening. And after 28 days, I left and I had that same young lady meet me at the door with the pint. I cracked the seal, picked up a drink. And the allergy was on me as if I never stopped. I'm an alcoholic. When I drink, the cravings intensify, never satisfy. I'm still in a place of mental obsession. As far as the spirituality and the remedy to that, nothing was being done. I was just separated. I have found out the hard way in Alcoholics Anonymous, especially in my first six months in here, that I can be separated from alcohol and other moon and mind-altering substances and still be as loony as I was when I was using. In fact, my truth is this. I'm more dangerous sober without spiritual muscles than when I'm drunk. When I'm drunk, I'm predictable. Eventually, I'm going to start to cry, and when you feel bad for me, I'm going to hit you up for money, and then I'll pass out. It's when I come to, I'm probably going to rob your house. I'm probably going to steal from you. I'm going to do bad things. I don't have a good reaction to just being abstinent. I learned that my first six months in AA, where my illness went underground and resurfaced in other areas. Sex sprees, food sprees, money sprees, fear sprees, thinking sprees. I was always thinking. 
<laughs> how many, by the way, how many folks drove here alone in the car tonight? Show of hands. Anyone got Okay. You're not telling me the truth, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> if you think about the ride over here alone in your car, how many people were in your head talking to you at the same time? <clears throat> how many arguments did you get into before you walked in here? I can't believe they didn't ask me to speak. I'm spiritual. Are you driving? <laughs> Hoping to meet the future Mr. and Mrs. X at the conference. Thinking about what happened to me in the third grade, what's going to happen to me when I'm rich. And it got too tall, too short, I'm too fat, I'm too thin. I should, I should, we should all over ourselves. We argue with each other. And then we walk into the AA conference and go, Joe, how you doing? I'm wonderful. <laughs> Start owning in the corner. Well, here's the bad news. When you go back to your car, there's 45 people in the back seat waiting for you. <laughs> oh, baby, we're doing a lot of thinking. I remember my sponsor, Mark, when he was alive, he says, never be nervous about doing one of these things because the people, most of us, are listening with one ear and thinking about what we're going to say with the other ear. So no one's paying attention anyway. But alcoholism would go underground and resurface in other areas. And I use self-reliance to overcome self. I go into fear, current agnosticism, more fear, more self-reliance, a vicious cycle while I'm sober and alcoholics and honest. I knew nothing about that back then. I got discharged from treatment. I was drinking. I was right back again listening to the voices. In my first six months in alcoholics and honest, I was still listening to the voices. I was still acting out. I didn't have any kind of spiritual muscles to be still in my own skin. How many times we can be sitting on the couch, all the bills are paid, the job is secure, we have enough money in the bank, the kids are healthy, the relationship is great, and suddenly your mind goes, yeah, but. And then it starts again. I had to learn about Walks and Amos to start listening to a different voice and to detach from everything my mind tells me. The mind, the greatest predator ever to hit the planet. It is a thing that causes problems all the time, problems of my own making. All wrongdoing comes from my mind. What's the mind transformed? What wrongdoing can exist if I'm just coming from spirit? And Alcoholics Anonymous allows me to live from spirit rather than the mind. I made my second treatment center. I made my third treatment center. I made my fourth treatment center. And blessed my poor family because they were doing the roller coaster ride with me. Every time I came out of the treatment, the goose hung high. They were just praying that something would work. <clears throat> I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous how God speaks through brick walls. These brick walls that we put up, self-imposed crisis, it's called life. And what I try to do is get around them, my family comes with me. Go under them, my family comes with me. Punch a hole through it, my family comes with me. And then I realized one particular day, I had to drop to my knees and beg God for help. And once I do that, I hear the voice of God saying, there's an entrance right there. It took a lot to get to that point. Almost killed me and leveled my family. I got a job as a, a dock worker, a longshoreman in South Brooklyn, not the training ground for spiritual growth. I work with men who were fed up with the day at sunrise, and there I was, and I took my alcohols, and then I was making lots of money as a young fella. I used to get paid on Wednesday morning, and Thursday I was going to certain folks to get money. I was borrowing money on Thursday, borrowing money on Friday, borrowing money on Saturday, how to pay them back. I never had money, and I was making a lot of it, all to keep the drunk going. There was a whole chunk of years in my story, but I got addicted to non-conference approved drug goods. 
I walked into my fifth treatment center. I was diagnosed with hep C. I had abscesses on my arm. I had holes in my arms. And I weighed about 130 pounds. About 195 now is about 60 pounds less than I weigh now. I was dying of alcoholism. I remember my dad found me in the grip of the grapes one particular day. And he threw me in the backseat of his car. And he was sitting there with his wife. And he's just screaming at me. I didn't hear any of it. And his wife turned around and looked at me. She says, it hurts my heart to see you die in front of me. Those words pierce through everything. I said, I'm dying, aren't I? I'm dying. This self-imposed crisis. And I can't even get out even though I want to. Because by the time I got to my fifth treatment center, I had a powerful desire to stop drinking. I didn't know the big book says that a powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. It'll bring you to AA, it'll bring you to treatment, it'll bring you to your door and say, Bill, can you sponsor me? But I need something for a long distance and that has to be God. I got fired as a longshoreman. This job was probably the second most powerful union in the nation at one time. You cannot get fired from this job. You cannot get fired from this job. I got fired from that job. Because of my shenanigans. And I remember my dad showing up like the cavalry one particular day. Guys, if it wasn't for the courage, strength, and direction that my God gave my dad, you'd have a different speaker here tonight. But he showed up like the cavalry. He says, if you do the right thing, if you do everything those people tell you, I'll see what I can do about getting your job back. Now, I had been through my fifth treatment center by now. I spent nine weeks in my fifth treatment center. So I knew treatment. I knew how to do, do treatment. I knew I was alcoholic. I knew I couldn't stop drinking. I don't know how much I wanted to stay stopped, but here I was in a terrible dilemma. And I went into this fifth treatment center, and I'm up there for nine weeks. Now, back in the day, it was a 28-day in your out. What they had to do with me, the clinicians and the doctors, they had to write up basically bogus psych issues. So the insurance company would pay to keep me there longer because they said, if you leave after 28 days, you're going to die. And so they put me in this thing called the flight deck, and I was up there for nine weeks, and they'd take me over for AA meetings when H&I would come in. And approaching nine weeks, I start to feel better, look healthier, I wasn't even thinking about drinking. I'm thinking, I'm good to go. That was one bad dream. It's really going to be okay. And on, I was discharged on a Saturday morning after nine weeks of being in my fifth treatment center. As soon as I hit the fresh air, alcoholism was on me as if it never left. I was thinking again. I had anxiety again. My stomach was upside down again. I had channel of a thousand voices. I couldn't pay attention. I lost my appetite. I was vibrating on the inside, and I experienced white knuckles sobriety for two days. I couldn't take it. My mind kept telling me, just one little drink you put in your stomach will settle down, and the anxiety will go away, and you can be okay. Just get one drink in you. I promise you. I promise you. It's me, your alcohols, and don't worry. Just one drink. Just one drink, we're going to be okay. Don't even drink hard liquor, just get a beer, we're going to be okay. I wrestled with that for two days, I couldn't take it. On Monday, I was in front of the liquor store, waiting for the liquor store to call me to get there. He rolled up the fence, I put my money on the glass petition, give me a pint of Mr. Boston. I cracked the seal, I ran outside, and I got the liquor down as fast as possible to capture that elusive feeling so I can breathe. I didn't drink for effect anymore. I drank just to breathe. I drank just to stand up, to be back in my skin. I can't tell you how many times on my way to treatment, on my way to detox, I would be crying. I'm never going to do this again. I can't do it again. And as soon as I'm discharged, I drank again. Six out of seven treatment centers, guys, I managed two days sobriety. That's all I can come up with. 
On my way to a liquor store, I'd be crying, I don't want to do this anymore, give me a pound, because I had to drink. It was beyond any control that I can come up with. And because I go to meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous, my alcoholism doesn't take a vacation. It'll get me where I think I'm good. It'll get me right in here. It'll get me. I'll get hijacked on the way home from this conference if I'm not spiritually fit. I'll get hijacked on the way home from work. Want to get home to the family, have a nice dinner, just left an AA meeting, just got a year anniversary coin or whatever it is. Everything's good. And on my way home, my call makes a left instead of a right. And I'm back in the jingle doing it all over again. We get hijacked. And no human power can prevent that. God gave me a taste of that. This apartment, my dad got me. He showed up like the cows. I'm going to give you one more shot. Let's see what you can do. And he got me this little studio apartment in Brooklyn. He furnished the entire place for me. Put new furniture in there. Stocked up the refrigerator. Got me new clothes. Bought me new shoes. They were still in the boxes. Put some money on the table. Put a phone in. Got a nice TV. And if I could prove myself, then I would get my job back. As soon as he left, I carried the TV out the door. And it wasn't flat screens like we got now. These were the old-fashioned TVs. You think anyone will notice? <clears throat> and I sold all the clothes. I sold everything in the place. And eventually I was thrown out of this little apartment. Not only for not paying my rent, but the element I brought in there became my own little battery, my own little hell. I thought I can escape God and escape AA. But there's another book that says, whether I make my bed in heaven or in hell, God is there. And because I'm not folks anonymous, I don't have more God than the drunk under the bridge tonight, drinking themselves to death. We have just as much God. The difference is I came into AA, got a program, and got a, a sense of connectedness to my God, rather than separateness from my God. If I could have sold the refrigerator and carried that out the door, I would have sold that too. If this little studio apartment was hell, I had filthy laundry all over the place, and I wasn't washing clothes, and I had stopped bathing. My bed today is a clean bed. I sleep with a woman on the door. Clean sheets, clean covers, clean pillows. I had a mattress that was blood-stained and soiled, and I would crash out in there and not pay rent. I missed the Boston Blackberry brandy bottles all over the place. This is not for shock. This is where my algorithm took me to. Where God had to bring me to the edge of a cliff to have my nails dug in to get my attention. Because a day shy or a day later, you have a different speaker here. But God will go to any lens to have a relationship with any one of us. He's still pursuing us tonight as we sit here. Looking as good as we do. God's still pursuing every one of us. Begging to have a relationship with us. Whether we're in the most sordid moment of our life or sitting high on the hog and alcoholics anonymous, we're not even thinking about drinking for many years. God is still pursuing to experience greater oneness with us. We were born to be saints, like it or not. It's time to alcoholics anonymous. I start acting like one with all my flaws, with all my brokenness. Because only in that brokenness can God's light shine through and wake me up and bring me closer in a sense to him. Whether I'm here for the first day or here for 40 years, God is still pursuing because we, I have work to do. Stand by the door, as Sam Shoemaker says, and get the next one coming in. I didn't get sober so I can have a nice job and a nice relationship. God gave me that, and he'll take it away if he sees fit. God has removed many things from me, which I interpreted as bad because they were painful. They were just standing in the way of me doing work for him. He prunes the tree, so the tree bears good fruit. And people can eat from the vine like we do in AA. We feed each other. But a bad tree will bear, bear fruit. And people will get sick. And he can't have that. God got me sober to do one thing. Be his servant and help another drunk achieve sobriety. And when I lose sense of that, I lose you. 
this is a reflection of what I do. My whole life is one of service. God continually removes things. I got thrown out of this apartment. It was a nasty place when I got thrown out of there. My, my landlord, I remember arguing with him. How dare you do this to me? The place reeked. I reeked even more. It was disgusting. It was filthy. And I, again, I couldn't get my job back. My family locked all doors. Even my grandparents said, you can't come here anymore. And I began this thing called homelessness with a huge alcohol problem. I remember the first night I was on the street. I said, this is pretty cool. No one can check up on me. This is great. Then it got dark out. And I said, no, dude, you want a good idea. I was petrified. I don't do the streets well. I got beat up a lot. Got beat up by police, got beat up by drug dealers, got, just got beat up a lot. I was walking around with this impending doom all the time. I remember I couldn't even walk on the sidewalk like most folks do because my mind was telling me someone's going to jump out and shoot you or stab you. I used to walk on the avenue in the middle of the street. I felt more protected that way. I can only imagine what I look like. I wound up outside the, uh, the Manhattan Port Authority on the Upper West Side one day. Until this moment, I don't know how I got there. And I don't know what happened to me afterwards. But God gave me truth for a moment. God interrupted this whole mess for me and served me truth. I was blind drunk and God got me instantly sober. And what I did in this moment was as if my life passed before my eyes. I thought of my mom, thought of my brothers, thought of my dad this whole life. And I realized what I had turned into. I'm literally a bum in the street. I'm like 26, 27 years old. I have blood-stained soil pants on. I'm walking around with a turtleneck and a jacket. I'm, I'm sweating and cold at the same time. I'm dehydrated. I hadn't eaten. I was living to get a pint and eat some value. <clears throat> That's all I did. I had construction boots and the right shoe had no front. And I'm expecting just to blend in looking like this. <laughs> and I would panhandle through the streets of New York. And as soon as I get enough money to get a pint, I go back into the hallway. And that's where I live, just live in a hallway. And that's when I found this building in the Lower East Side, this abandoned building. And I felt safe in the abandoned building because the cops didn't roll through abandoned buildings too much. It was just that bad of a scene. But there I was, tucked behind this old metal radiator, thinking no one can see me, like, a, like an ostrich burying ahead of the sand, thinks no one can see it. That was me. And I'd come out like a vampire and get some liquor and go back in. Come out like a vampire, hustle up some money, get some liquor and go back in. And the will to live was gone. I was experiencing this moral uh, humiliation of everything. They were out the window. I didn't care what I looked like. I didn't care what I sound. I didn't care. I just needed a pint, so I stopped getting sick. Because I couldn't believe it. I'm 27. I heard these stories in the end. I heard these stories in treatment about tremors. I said, what is that? I'll never have that. And I'm 27. I'm walking around like this, full of anxiety. Then it got to a point where I can't get drunk. I can't get sober. The first thing comes right back up. Oh, my God. What is wrong with me? I don't know what happened to me, but outside this board of authority, I cursed God, and I don't know what happened to me afterwards. Until June 23rd, 1980 showed up. It was a short time later. I had AMA out of my sixth treatment center. By the grace of God, I got put in my sixth treatment center. And after a day and a half, I left because I knew what I was in for with the detox. I remember twice detoxing and had to be hospitalized in a treatment center because my detoxes were so awful and I'm not about to go through that again. My mind is still lying to me, still screaming at me, just get out of here and get a drink and start over. 
You don't need this, Pete. And I, by the way, the truth almost killed me at the end. Clancy always heard talks about this disease of perceptions. I was right in the middle of it and couldn't find my way out, which I was enough to do. Give me a sense of hopelessness. There is no way out of this. Might as well just die. And I hit the streets. June 23rd showed up, and I had this event happen to me as I shared with you at the beginning. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. I had this moment of clarity to call my dad. I was going to hobble over to a payphone and call my dad, collect. But God gave me some integrity where if I call my dad, he was the only guy on the planet that's going to come get me to come see his firstborn in this condition. A bum on the street, I couldn't do it. My dad was in a town called Atlantic City spending some time with his wife down there. My dad told me this story at my first day anniversary. God works through people, but it isn't only people in alcoholics and arms. It's just people. While my dad was spending some time in Atlantic City with his, with his wife, he had this feeling. He says this feeling in his gut, as he described it, that godly voice, that quiet voice, that cuts through all the noise. And it was he had to get back to Brooklyn to find me, had to get to New York to find me, that his oldest son was in trouble. And he told his wife, my son Peter's in trouble, I need to go find him. And he treks his way back and his wife, driving through all these areas, and he finds me. And there I am, just off the corner, dying of alcoholism. I can't even fathom what that's like to have your son or daughter dying in front of you. I'm in the treatment center business for many years. I hear the calls all the time, but I'm not a parent. I can't even fathom what that must be like. But there was my dad, and he got out of the car and walked across the street and called my name. I remember telling dad, I'm okay, I'm fine, don't worry. And as he got close enough to me, I collapsed. This I will remember, I pray, till the day God takes me home. Because it was a sordid moment for both of us. It was an incredibly painful moment for both of us. How dark it is before the dawn. Because what God did was lift us both up and plant us in new soil. I questioned my life as a young man and as a son to my dad. And I know my dad was questioning his role as a parent and as a man. What was missing? What were we doing wrong? We missed the boat. We never got along. We never even looked at each other. It was kind of these passing ships in the night. And here we were in a worst moment, and I collapsed in my dad's arms, and I remember my dad holding me up and with this, this, this mantra saying over and over and over again, I'm not going to lose my son to this. I'm not going to lose my son to this. I'm not going to lose my son. I don't know who he was talking to, but I got a pretty good idea. See, we can pray a lot. We can shout God on the street corners. We can come into AA and give a profound 11-step talk. Words I'm not interested actions I am. My dad in that moment was the most spiritual man I ever met in my life. And it became really attractive. I remember being very aware that my dad and I never did this. I felt like an eight-year-old kid wrapped up in his dad's arms. There was some security in this horrible moment. And off I went to my seven treatment center. Guys, after ten days of being in treatment, after all of this, my mind said one more drink and we'll go back to group. Just get out of here, just get a little pint, just something, and we go back to group. It won't hurt me this time. And they shipped me off to Minnesota. <laughs> I remember sitting with one of the counselors up there, and he says, I couldn't believe I was saying, I want a drink. I need a drink. I will never tell you I want a drink, because you just might stop me from drinking. I can't do that. I said, I want a drink. I need a drink. I want a drink. I need a drink. They said, hold on. They shipped me off to a place in Minnesota. I wound up living out there for almost a whole year, and I was brought to a meeting called the Three Legacies Meeting, 
try to make me a problem as big as this group tonight. The greeters were at the door with shirt and tie. Women had suits on. The speakers were dressed in suits. Everyone looked wonderful, pristine, impeccable. And I wanted what they had to offer. Not like some meetings we go to today where the speakers look like they're going to commit a felony as soon as the talk is over. <laughs> they gave AA its respect. They brought humility and integrity to a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wanted what they had. And after about 11 months, almost a year, I was brought home. And I was brought to my first home, the Free Spirit Group in Brooklyn. And there was a gentleman there who was walking around with his book and sponsoring a lot of people and was not liked by the majority because he spoke truth from his book. He wasn't popular, but God brought him to me and put me in front of me. Can you sponsor me? And we began this journey through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was sponsored by that man for about eight years or so. And I needed a teacher. And Mark H. was put in my path. And through Mark H., I, I, I got to know great teachers my lineage, the precious, rich lineage that God put me to be a part of. My job now is to keep the light on, to keep the lamp on top of the table so it lights up the room so those who are lost can find their way, not tuck the lamp under the table so no one can find it. To be impeccable with our words, to me to be impeccable with my word. Because it's not what goes in that defiles me, it's what comes out that defiles me and hurts other people. Because we may, I might be the only copy of a big book someone reads. How am I doing with that? My big book says, well, agents for God. An agent represents the principle. How am I doing with that? Representing God. What an honor. I can't go through with it. But that's what our book says to do. Go represent this great power. Practicing fidelity to God. And not having God before my God like money, property, prestige. None of that stuff. Because none of it matters at the end of the day. I know what it's like to be on the street and wanting to die. And I come into our books and I always say, just follow a few simple rules. You won't even be thinking about drinking and you'll have a passion for life. Be excited about life. That's what you gave me. So I make a living. Self-supporting through my own contributions because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've been broke and I almost had to declare bankruptcy. And I've gone through uh, health scares. I've lost many, many people. If you're around here a while, you're going to lose a lot of close people. Lost family members. Went through a divorce. Went through all of that. And somehow God allowed me to go through it, head up and shoulder square and chop wood and carry water and seek this God. I will tell you, in some of those very, very challenging times, turned out to be the most intimate moments with me and God. There was nowhere else to go. Just on my knees and lay my troubles at his feet with bowed head and bending knee. Father, please have mercy, show me the way out. And then you would show up or you would show up or you would show up <laughs> and rally around me and hold me up. Because I have the strength to do that. And I've been able to experience great joys in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you were there, and you were there, and you were there to experience that with me. And not be envious of me or jealous about it. But just support me. The sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. That guy I called Dad, who never got along with me or him with, with, with each other. I can tell you. My best friend. An incredible event happened for me. I used to tell my dad, Dad, I love you. Yes, same here. Same here. <laughs> my dad's old school. I think he was born in 200 AD. That's how we are. <laughs> really old school. Then he started to just reply, I love you too. But God is contagious. You get one of us who is spiritually fit and go back into that home that was leveled by alcoholism. 
And we just walked and walked. Chop wood and carry water. Chop wood and carry water. Just walked and walked. Let the preacher and pontificate. Just live this AA life, the spiritual AA life. You will see how that leaves residue with the family. They start to feel different, look different, sound different. Some of them go to the sacred rooms of Alamont to get help. It's a wonderful thing. And I remember telling my dad, God bless you. We never say anything. My dad's not a God guy. He believed in God, but I worry about that when the day comes. One day I get off the phone, my dad's dad, God bless you. He said, same here, as I'm getting closer. <laughs> I got this really neat business thing that happened to me. Just partnered up with some folks. I'm finally my own boss. My dad was just thrilled for me because he knows how hard I worked in the business I'm in for so many years. I have no college education. I just scratched and clawed, and God gave me some gifts. A lot of things I can't do well. There's a few things God gave me. And once we realize what our purpose in life is, we can begin to wear the world like a loose garment without a purpose. Chop wood and carry water, that's direction. And my dad was just so thrilled for me. And right before we got off the phone, I heard this. God bless you. I almost drove off the road. <laughs> this godly thing that we get to experience for fun and for free. I do know if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and you need help. I need help. If I call my therapist, I'm going to get an answering machine. If you call the cops, you're probably going to get taken and arrested. You call a drunk, this is what you hear. Where are you? We're on our way. That's my Alcoholics Anonymous. I owe, because you always showed up for me. In the worst of times and the most joyful of times, my dad and I have this really neat relationship. My family and I, we have this really neat relationship, me and my brothers. Now, when you walk into the house, you don't hear, like, hops in the background and doves flying around. We have our stuff. My middle brother has come down with Parkinson's. And my youngest brother was diagnosed with this thing, uh, bipolar, extreme bipolar. But here's what he always did. I got off the plane. I was coming back from Texas after a talk. I was living in Union, New Jersey. My dad calls me a bit frantic. He says, your, your brother's here. He's about to call dying woman to take him to the hospital. He's having an episode. We didn't know what was going on. He was on the downside of this. And I, I, and I drove over there, and I'm looking at my brother, who's about 6'3", just full of muscle. I hate him. He's just ripped all over. Just <clears throat> and he's, in a, he's just in a puddle. And he kept talking about it so alone, I'm so alone, I'm so alone. He was on the downside of this bipolar thing. And I did what AA taught me to do, and I did what I learned to do in my business, and I got him in off the ledge and eventually got him to a doctor, and he's been properly medicated, and thank the good Lord, he's doing okay. I bring this up for this reason. Our big book says, we know loneliness such as you do. So I called up some guys I sponsor, and I called up some of the men that I'm friends with in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I shared with them what my brother was going through. And I said, you guys do me a favor. Just call my brother. You guys don't have bipolar. But we know about that lonely feeling when no one can hear us. Can you just give them a call? Every one of them called me. My brother said, I didn't know you had this many friends. <laughs> my brother loves us in AA. My dad kept telling me, these, these guys in AA are calling your brother. They spend time with him on the phone. 
They did that for fun and for free. That's the chopping wood and carrying water. No applause, no spotlight. We just get the ground firm and God do the growing. No one's looking, but we're chopping wood and carrying water because we reflect this power called God. And the second rooms of Alcohol Sounds, it's not just about my homeroom. This is about life, a design for living that works, even in rough going. Alcoholics Anonymous has always shown up for me. There was a tremendous mystery that, uh, that was walking with this, this pain. And we all have that thing in us, that thing that has happened last week or 20 years ago when we swallow hard that unresolved painful thing that we walk with. I had many of those. One of them was this. When my mom committed suicide, where did she go? How come she went? I had this riddle. And through the power of meditation, where God hears the heart and reads the soul, he delivered to me when the ground was fertile enough in a meditation experience. I love the beach. I live in Florida. I love being by the water. When I first got sober, I would light two candles, one for the sick and suffering in and out of the rooms, and light another candle for my mom. I didn't go to Mass much, but I would go to church and light these two candles. I'd make some prayer for both and out the door and go. I was doing this for nine years. And I'm meditating for nine years. And I'm praying for nine years, taking the directions from the sponsor. And one morning in meditation, I go into a place where you forget you're meditating. You transcend this. And God said, now the ground's firm. And in this meditation, I'm sitting on this beach. And off on the horizon, walks the carpet to my God towards me. And literally, out of his chest appears my mom. Showing oneness, which is what the goal is. Oneness with God. No God and it's just God. And we walk with it. Whether we're here or there. And as she walked towards me, she kneeled down and became this little eight-year-old boy and she gave me this hug. I remember being on a blind drunk and cursing in God out. I says, if you send my mom down and let her give me a hug, you rip me off, I'll quit drinking. It took nine years of meditation. My mom walks towards me and kneels down. And this little eight-year-old boy, and mom gives me this big hug in meditation. Guys, you know, when you're eight, nine, and ten, and mama gives you a hug, it's a great place. The world's a great place to be. Safe. I stood up, and I became an adult, and my mom held on to me once more in this meditation. My God put his arm around my shoulder. I've shared this with a million podiums. And eyeball to eyeball, we were, no words were spoken. And what he said to me was, she's okay, she's with me. Bliss is putting it mild. Utopia feeling, putting it mild. How could you adequately explain a God experience? You can't, because if I could, it wasn't godly. My mom pointed off to the horizon this way, pointed off to the horizon that way. And each time she pointed, she looked at, she pointed at these flickering lights, hundreds and hundreds of flickering lights. She held on to me once more. How did my higher power walk off? And I came out of the meditation, weeping. What just happened? I don't know if this meditation lasted an hour, ten minutes. I have no idea. When we're in that place, those godly moments, there's no time, there's no calendar. It ceased to exist, but we are present. And so I called my sponsor and I shared with him what just happened. I said, I didn't get all these flickering lights. I don't get it. What just happened? And he says, haven't you been lighting candles for your mom now about nine years? I said, yeah. He says, she let you know she got them. And I realized at that moment, knowing that I'm known by my creator, what a tremendous gift that my God walks with me. My God hears the heart. Here's your heart. Our God is trying to pursue us and have a wondrous relationship with us. And he delivered it to me in a meditation when I wasn't expecting it. How God shows up. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but when God shows up, God shows up and is profound.
continue to go to church, but not mass. I just want to close with this story. I'm doing a fifth step with my current sponsor, Mickey M. from Colorado. What a teacher God has given me. I'm reading to him my fifth step, came to institutions, and I'm reading about the Catholic Church. It's very matter of fact. About some of the problems in my church. Some of the things we all read in the headlines. It's very matter of fact that my sponsor said, oh, well, hold on, back up. <laughs> How long has this resentment been going on? And since when have you gotten bigger than AA that you can walk around with a resentment like this, the number one offender? Well, he gave me some instructions about amends because I've been saying slandering and saying bad things about it. Bit of a hypocrite. Always praying to God, but some problems with this institution. And generalizing everything. He needs to make amends. Comes out of the fifth step. So in the church, I said to call confession. I walked in there one day. I sat down, and I spoke to the pastor. He says, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and here's why I'm here. And I told him what I was doing. I said, well, what can I do to make it right? He said, can you come to Mass tomorrow? Give me absolution, sure. Hi, Mass, 10.30, Sunday morning. I'm walking in, the bells are going off, and I begin to weep because I was home. I've been going every Sunday since. If I'm not on the road, and sometimes when I'm on the road, I'll find a local church because that's important to me. Along with not instead of, when I got home, I got free of that resentment. I got free of all of it. I get to serve communion in my church and read scripture when I'm asked, on the altar. Talk about a complete transformation from the inside out. We talk about the grace of God in our folks, and that's the difference between having the grace of God and experience that power which gives us grace. We talk about the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, but for the grace of God in our folks and others. And some of us will get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to get to do a talk at 6 o'clock in the morning on the other side of the state because there's a whole bunch of people going to be there and they ask me to speak. So we make a road trip. That's a beautiful thing. But to go to our religious communities once a week for one hour and tell our Heavenly Father, whatever we come from, thank you for this life. I got too busy. How many of us are too busy to do that? What in is my church? Well, God bless you. But what if you took care of me day after day after day, brought me food, brought me sobriety, brought me clothes, brought me integrity, brought me humility, just kept taking care of me, regardless of the weather, no matter how much I hollered at you, you kept showing up and gave me all of this stuff every single day, literally breathed life into me, and no matter what I said or how I sounded or what I looked like, on the way out the door, you said, I love you. And after about a year or two of this, you said, can you come to my house? I'm having a birthday party, but you come to my house for one hour, I want you to meet some of my friends. And I said, Ken, I'm too busy. And another year goes by and says, will you come to my house? And every day you're serving me, giving me this wonderful life. But I can't go to your house for one hour. And I realized, this God, I can't visit his house for one hour a week. What a hypocrite I was. I don't live like that anymore. Because on Sundays, I visit my dad's house, my father's house. And if I'm on the road, I'll do it another time. All because of the sacred wounds called Alcoholics Anonymous. You've put my family back together. You've given me this life. I pray to be teachable and pass this message on with the same loving gratitude that you freely give it to me every time I walk in the door. That's all I got. Peace.